Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Are some people just born evil? It's a question various psychologists, philosophers, academic researchers, members of law enforcement, the judicial system, and just regular old schmucks like me have long pondered. Is an individual's criminal behavior more influenced by their genetics or their circumstance? The classic nature versus nurture debate. And we're going to revisit that debate today. Serial killer Terry Blair, the prospect killer, certainly got me thinking about it again. I've never come across a serial killer with more other killers in their immediate family than this guy at least not in modern times. Terry's crimes were definitely influenced by his upbringing. The only question is, how much? Terry Blair was charged with the murders of eight women after being caught in September of 2004. And shortly before he was caught, he'd just been released from prison on parole after serving 21 years for killing the mother of his two children. In 2004, the Kansas City Police found six women's bodies in abandoned or hidden places around Prospect Avenue in high cr- a high-crime area notorious for sex work. The women had been there for several days to several weeks, in some cases, based on the state of their remains, their bodies concealed from view, hidden in difficult-to-find locations, and it appeared that they had been strangled. It was clear that a serial killer was on the loose. For a brief period, residents around the area of Prospect Avenue, where the bodies were found, lived in terror, more terror than normal. This neighborhood already riddled with crime. They waited for another woman to be found dead. And then Terry Blair was arrested for murder, again, there was two other bodies associated with his killings, and he was far from the first Blair to be arrested for murder in Kansas City. He was just one of many murderers from the same family tree. It's crazy how many times he and his relatives in Kansas City, all from the Prospect Avenue neighborhood, it seemed, had been arrested for and convicted of committing violent crimes. Based on his family history, it seemed like Terry was destined to spend most of his life in prison, which is exactly what he's done. This week, we'll discuss the life and crimes of Terry Blair, as well as the many crimes of his family, follow the investigation that led to the capture of the prospect killer, Terry Blair, and more on another true crime serial killer or some of us born almost doomed to become a killer edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to 
Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the Suckmaster, Dad Watch Advocate. Still nervous about last week's unsolved murders. Mush-mouthed moron. And you are listening to Time Suck. A uh, couple real quick announcements today. One last charity announcement for April. Able to donate $13,986 to Big Table with another $1,554 headed to the scholarship fund. So woohoo! To find out more about Big Table, go to big-table.com. Uh, not sure how Phoenix went this past weekend with stand-up shows. Hope the new shit was funny. I've been writing a lot of stuff down. Uh, now come see it in Bloomington, Indiana, May 4th, 5th, and 6th. And Madison, Wisconsin, May 11th, 12th, and 13th. Go to dancummins.tv. Flying through this shit today. And last quick announcement. Are you a victim of Cummins Law? Have you ever been puckered, buttholed, embarrassed against your will due to technological mishaps, unexpected volume increases, Bluetooth pairing failures, Bluetooth pairing successes, or any other accidental public broadcast of Time Suck? If so, you may be entitled to this collection. Cummins Law Certified Victim Merchandise features a tea, office mug, framed mini to display your status as a certified victim. Stop living in silent shame. Don't hold it in any longer. Visit badmagicmerch.com today. Uh, th- and that's it. And that's it for announcements for you dirty front butt dumps. Now let's fucking get going. And uh, chit-chat. One-sided chit-chat, of course, about the prospect killer. Uh, starting off by briefly discussing how families might influence future criminal behavior today, followed by an overview of the criminal histories of Terry's family members to set the stage for his own crimes. Holy shit, this family. Uh, then we'll cover a timeline of Terry Blair's life and our timeline today. I don't know why I said timeline twice. Uh, how his victims were found, who they were, and how Terry was quickly apprehended by detectives before wrapping it all up. And we're also going to meet somebody named Rooster. So that's always fun. Let's go. Terry Anthony Blair, the prospect killer. According to Wikipedia, Prospect Avenue or Prospect, uh, also known as Prospect, uh, is a north-south main street that runs in Kansas City, Missouri from Lexington Avenue to 85th, lies close to U.S. Route 71 from Swope Parkway to 75th Street. Yeah, Prospect Avenue, uh, the term used to designate a historically bad crime and poverty-ridden neighborhood in Kansas City. I would compare it to East Sprague in Spokane, Washington. A little over 30 minutes from the Suck Dungeon here in Coeur d'Alene near Gonzaga. Uh, when I was going to school there, or living in Spokane after school, you would say East Sprague sometimes to refer to the actual street, but more often you would just say in reference to a stretch of East Sprague, a mile or two long, uh, several blocks on either the north or south side of the street, but just a super rough area of town. Uh, the area of town where the subject of episode 289, Spokane serial killer Robert Yates, uh, found most of his sex worker victims. And Terry Blair got his nickname because he found most of his victims, also sex workers or suspected sex workers, uh, in the Prospect Avenue area of Kansas City. And when I first heard his nickname, uh, not knowing Prospect was the name of a street in Kansas City, my mind wandered all over the place, making all kinds of crazy assumptions about what Prospect could be referring to with the serial killer. Right? Like, was, uh, like was he killing motorcycle gang recruits? That'd be a tough-ass serial killer. You know, one who kills young, tough dudes looking to join up with a legit outlaw biker gang, become a one-percenter. Talk about a challenging victim group to hunt. Every time you kill a new dude, you have a whole fucking crew trying to find out who you are and kill you. I also wondered if he put out some kind of classified type ad advertising a legit sounding job of some sort, right? And then when the job prospect shows up, he kills him. 
Like, like he pretends to own some kind of marketing company or whatever, meets people uh, applying for a job at a coffee shop, makes them go over their whole resume, go through an intense interview, ask them a lot of personal questions and use information gathered from the interview and the application, you know, like where they've written their home address to find and kill them. Just uh, 1856 West Sanford Drive. Is that, uh, is that correct? Uh-huh. That's a nice neighborhood. That's the kind of neighborhood where you can leave your doors unlocked. <laughs> oh, you do. You do leave your doors unlocked. Okay. All right. Are you a gun owner by chance? No? Huh. And uh, do you have no problem with the position that starts at 6 a.m. Monday through Friday? You're an early riser, always in bed by nine. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. And that doesn't bother your husband or your kids or roommates? Now you live alone. <laughs> oh, all right. Okay. Sorry. I, I got it. Uh, well, I think that's all I need, Sarah. Uh, appreciate your time. Right? Some, some killer has to have done something like that before, right? excuse me, maybe one I've already covered. There've been so many now, I'm starting to lose track of who did what. Well, Terry did not do that. Uh, Sorry to say his serial killer nickname is not not that creative. Just refers to uh, where he found his victim. Still, uh, Terry Blair was a fearsome and very prolific killer when he was active. He would be convicted of murdering six women in 2004. After being uh, charged initially with eight murders, he'd killed them all over the course of just a few months. At the time of the murders, he was on parole for the previous murder of the pregnant mother of his two children. And in interviews in recent years, he has alluded to several other murders he may have committed. And I'm not surprised. Terry Blair was, in a sense, raised to be a killer. He was born into a family of killers. His mom killed his stepdad right in front of him. An older brother and an older sister, both convicted killers. One has already been executed by the state of Missouri. Another brother convicted attempted murderer and rapist. Uh, We don't know who Terry's dad is. Uh, Might be my dad. Uh, Terry mentioned he lived in Mississippi, but no details. I would not be surprised to find out that he's not a killer. Or I, I would be surprised to find out that he is, uh, yeah, not a killer. Many of his other relatives are either convicted murderers or other violent criminals. When you're surrounded by this much violence, violence in your family, it has to greatly increase the odds that you're going to also become a murderer, doesn't it? Not trying to excuse what Terry has done, by the way. But in a sense, I do feel sorry for him more than I do with most of the killers we've covered. I'm not sure this dude had a single positive role model ever enter his childhood. And not long after he became adult, he was already a convicted killer. Still would have zero problem seeing this guy get executed. I still think he's a monster who would for sure kill again if he was ever released. He would immediately present a grave danger to a lot of the women around him. But I do feel bad for him in the sense that he wasn't ever given much of a chance to make something positive out of his life. Uh, Fox Butterfield. What a great fucking name. Fox Butterfield. Uh, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who covered criminal justice for the New York Times for 15 years. Wrote an article in 2018 titled, When Crime is a Family Affair. Uh, The article notes that in general, children tend to follow their parents' profession, apply this to crime, and you can get a Terry Blair. Uh, Butterfield cites several studies in his article. One London-based study titled, Who Becomes Delinquent? Second report of the Cambridge Study in Delinquent Development followed 411 boys from 1961 all the way to 2001. 40-year longitudinal study. A full half of the boys who were convicted of crimes were part of just 6% of all the families of the surveyed boys. Two-thirds of those convicted boys came from just 10% of the families. So 10% of these families accounted for two-thirds of the criminals. Families composed of a lot of people getting arrested. In the 1940s, a husband and wife research team at Harvard Law found that two-thirds of boys in the Boston area who were sent to a reformatory by the court had a father who had already been arrested. And 45% had a mother who had already been arrested. In 2007, the U.S. Bureau of Justice concluded that half of 800,000 
Incarcerated inmates had a close relative who had previously been incarcerated. Butterfield wrote, Despite the abundance of evidence showing the role of family in crime, criminologists and policymakers have largely neglected this factor. As the University of Maryland criminologist John Lobb told Butterfield, it's because any suggestion of a possible biological or genetic basis for crime could be misconstrued as racism. Instead, researchers have looked at other well-known risks, uh, causes like poverty, deviant peers at school, drugs, and gangs. Of course, these are real issues. But a child's life begins at home with the family even before the neighborhood. Friends or classmates can lead them astray. Uh, interesting to me how that was all phrased. Uh, sad that this type of research could be written off as racist uh, by many. Like, why would a lot of people from the same family, all being criminals, necessarily point to a genetic link, like a racial link? Not only are all the people in the same family sharing many of the same genes, they're also sharing, and I, I think this is more important, the same environment. To find out how much one's genetics play into the odds of becoming a criminal, you'd have to look at twin or adoption studies. In cases of twins being adopted into different families, when one grows up to become a career criminal with a long rap sheet, how often does the other twin in a different environment also become a, a convicted criminal? Some studies like that have been done, very few, very limited studies, and the results have been very inconclusive. They have definitely not pointed towards uh, a strong genetic link in criminal behavior. If both adopted twins commit more crimes than the average member of society, and there are also comparatively few examples of one adopted twin committing crimes but not the other, then you'd have real evidence that a proclivity to commit crime, you know, comes, comes from the blood, so to speak. It's a strong genetic basis that basically you can be born much more likely to commit crime regardless of how you're raised. But again, that evidence never been found. Uh, in 2014, a genetic analysis of almost 900 offenders in Finland did reveal two genes strongly associated with violent crime. Those uh, with the genes were 13 times more likely to have a history of repeated violent behavior than those who uh, do not have the genes. However, even if an individual has a high-risk combination of these genes, the majority will still never commit a crime. Uh, the lead researcher told the BBC, committing a severe violent crime is extremely rare in the general population. So even though the relative risk would be increased, the absolute risk, you know, it's still very low. Also, one person in a family having these two genes, dubbed the warrior genes, pretty fucking badass name for some genes, uh, doesn't mean that everyone else in the family also does. So that's problematic. We're looking into a family of criminals and surmising that the root of their shared behavior is genetic. You know, just different family members, even in a nuclear family, they don't have the exact same genes expressing themselves. Uh, to date, no study has conclusively, uh, you know, uh, proven some type of uh, born bad or blood, bad blood theory. Because again, most of the time, families of criminals also share the same style of upbringing, live in the same environment, share the same socioeconomic status, etc. However, numerous studies have proven a conclusive statistical link between parenting style and future criminal delinquency. So environment. If you're raised by parents who are either largely absent or abusive, who are hostile and or negligent, you are more likely to engage in negative behavior, including crime, than you would be if you were raised by attentive, loving, nurturing, supportive, non-abusive parents. I dig into the numbers of all this, but they're pretty complicated and nuanced, and to properly explain it all would take us way too far away from the narrative. But you can click the link in the show notes. Uh, that you can download from our app and go through pages and pages of statistical information. Uh, many other studies have conclusively linked environment and criminality. In summary, if you grow up impoverished and surrounded by crime, you are much more likely to commit crime than someone raised in an area with low crime who is not impoverished. Makes sense. Uh, one large published study I looked at said, environmental factors that contribute to juvenile crime and violence include violent and permissive families, unstable neighborhoods, 
and delinquent peer groups. Here's a quote from this study's abstract. Most violent behavior is learned behavior. Early exposure to violence in the family may involve witnessing either violence or physical abuse. Research suggests that these forms of exposure to violence during childhood increase the risk of violent behavior during adolescence by as much as 40%. That's fucking huge. Even if violence is not modeled in the home, research suggests that the absence of effective social bonds and controls together with the failure of parents to teach and children to internalize conventional norms and values puts children at risk of later violence. Some neighborhoods also provide opportunities for learning and engaging in violence, the presence of gangs and illegal markets, particularly drug distribution networks, not only provides high levels of exposure to violence, but violent role models and positive rewards for serious violent activity. So yeah, be a good parent. Don't abuse your kids. Love them, nurture them, and communicate with them, right? Most violent behavior is learned behavior. That applies so well to Terry Blair. Terry witnessed some fucking hardcore violence growing up. He was surrounded by drug dealers and violent criminals, grew up in a neighborhood consistently described in sources as the most violent and crime middled in all of Kansas City when he was a kid. Circling back to criminal justice expert Fox Butterfield. Is that a real person with that name? Uh, When looking into the possible familial links with crime and violence, he interviewed a member of the Bogle family, a notorious crime family. I fucking love hearing about this family. He learned about this family when an official from the Oregon Department of Corrections called to inform him that he knew about a family with six members currently in prison. Butterfield did some more digging, found that the true number of Bogles who are either currently incarcerated, on probation, or on parole, get this, was actually 60, 60 fucking members of the same extended family, all Bogles, either in prison, on probation, or out on parole at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Bogles not fucking around. Uh, Tracy Bogle, who had already served 16 years in prison for kidnapping, armed robbery, assault, car theft, and sexual assault, told Butterfield when he was interviewed, what you are raised with, you grow to become. That's actually a pretty profound quote. What you are raised with, you grow to become. There is no escape from our criminal contagion. Damn. The Bogle family's criminal history dates back at least to the 1920s when they sold moonshine during Prohibition. Tracy's dad, Rooster, would teach him his criminal ways. Tracy said, Rooster hated toys and sports. And the only fun thing to him was stealing. So he took us out with him to burglarize our neighbor's homes or steal their cows and chickens or take their social security checks out of their mailboxes. Holy shit. Uh, Can we stop for a second to talk about Rooster? (laughs) I wish there was a study done to show how likely it is for you to end up in prison if you're raised by a man who prefers to be called Rooster. I'm going to say at least 90%. Only stopping short of saying 100% because Rooster might teach you to crook so well, you just don't never get caught. Also, what are the odds of becoming a valedictorian or of winning a major award like a, like a Grammy, Oscar, Nobel Prize, Pulitzer Prize, like Fox Butterfield, uh, an award followed by a big acceptance speech if your dad is Rooster? I'm going to say roughly 0%. I'm guessing there has never been a speech like, I, uh, I'm blown away. <laughs> Grateful does not begin to describe how I feel about winning this Nobel Peace Prize. So many other deserving nominees. Uh, I am truly honored. First and foremost, I'd like to thank my father, Rooster, for always believing in me. Cock-a-doodle-doo, daddy. We cock-a-doodle did it. I love you, Rooster. I'll I'll bet you $1,000 that Rooster's favorite song was the Alice in Chains song, also called Rooster. Uh, He was the guy, like, every time he heard it, you know, they come to snuff the rooster. Oh, yeah. He's like, turn that shit up, bro. You know he ain't gonna die. 
He's like, oh, fuck yeah. Ain't no one getting rooster. Cockadoodle, don't fuck with the rooster. Uh, Tracy said he learned to imitate his father, Mr. Rooster, and older brothers and fellow rooster spawn and uncles, rooster's fellow cocks, when he began to commit his first crimes. Criminologists call this the social learning theory, which is uh, when a child emulates behaviors of the people around him. Tracy said the rooster, I, I fucking can't get over his name, uh, even took his kids to the local... Pre- <laughs> this is so ridiculous. Even took his kids, like when they were kids, to the local prison and told them, look carefully. When you grow up, this is where you are going to live. Jesus, rooster. Cockadoodle, don't do that. Uh, dude didn't seem to have a lot of confidence in his crooking. I did not expect that last part. I expected something more like, look carefully. When you grow up, you're going to do everything in your power. Take out whoever you need to take out to avoid getting your ass stuck up there in prison. But instead, he was like, here's the deal, kids. We bogles, we ain't never been good at getting away with what we was born to do. So yeah, 100% chance that's where you spend your life. Now, let me tell you how to buy another man's ass with cigarettes so you don't get yours bought. It's a buy or be bought world, kids. Cock-a-doodle, do what I fucking tell you to do. Uh, so is there a way to break this familial cycle? Oxford University criminologist David Kirk studied recently released prisoners in New Orleans in 2005. After Hurricane Katrina, many of them were unable to go home, so they moved to Texas. Several years later, the prisoners who moved had lower recidivism rates than the ones who remained in New Orleans because they were no longer part of the previous social networks that were immersed in crime. That makes total sense. Uh, I personally understand this. I went to a few different schools in a few different cities growing up. Riggins, Idaho, Anchorage, Alaska, Las Vegas, Nevada. And part of moving around, you know, a bunch as a kid sucked. Making new friends, not always easy. But also, I got to reinvent myself so many times, you know, find new social circles. And sometimes it was great. I went to three different grade schools in three years in Anchorage. And my social circle, how I was perceived by my peers, so different each time. I I know I was super young a long time ago, but I do remember how I felt at each school. I was a cool kid in one school. I was a fucking social pariah in another school. I was in the middle at another one. Spent my first two years of high school in a huge school in Las Vegas, Bonanza High School. I had about 650 kids in my class. Then I spent the last two years in Riggins, uh, Idaho, at Sam River High School, about 20 kids in my class. Las Vegas, I was seen, no question, as a fucking loser. I was uh, some poor kid who didn't dress cool, super skinny, quiet, awkward, had almost zero friends. Literally never had probably more than five kids at that school who even knew my name. I just sat in the back, didn't interact much, didn't really know how to fit in. Moved back to Riggins, uh, I was popular. I mean, most people there were so small, but like still, I was, uh, you know, maybe seen as weird because I guess I am pretty weird, but I wasn't a social leper. Then I went to college, met a whole new set of friends, started all over again, Spokane, Washington, struggled to get a girlfriend in high school in both Vegas and Riggins, would have struggled if I would have stayed, but didn't struggle in college. I was able to reinvent myself again, reinvented myself so many times. My first tattoo I got when I was 22 uh, was of a phoenix rising from the ashes, right? It's ashes on my back. Uh, so, of course, this would also apply to criminal behavior. And did with me, too. I was getting into some criminal shit in Las Vegas, and I'm convinced if I would not have moved, if my dad would not have moved my junior year, oh, I would have at least been in jail, if not prison. Uh, hard to get out of committing crimes if your entire social circle is criminals. But if you move away and have to start all over, so much easier to find a new group of friends who aren't necessarily into doing that shit. So back to UK criminologist David Kirk now. And uh, actually, before I say that, you know, Terry never got out. His whole family, it seems like they've been around Prospect Avenue for generations, just constantly immersed in the same shit. Uh, Now back to UK criminologist, David Kirk. He ended up creating a volunteer program for Baltimore prisoners based on his Katrina findings, a way to help them break the cycle of crime that they were in. They would receive housing allowances from the state if and only if they moved to another part of the state. 
after they were released. Smart. Cost of the program was just a fraction of the costs of what it would be to incarcerate the same people. So hail Nimrod. Another program was recently developed by University of South Carolina professor Scott uh, Hengler. Ah, who, who the fuck knows? <laughs> Hengler. Uh, Scott, you have a tough last name, uh, which focuses on providing treatment for the whole family to prevent further criminal choices rather than just an individual. And again, too bad Terry's family did not get some treatment because they fucking needed it. Let's look at them now. Right after a mid-show sponsor break, this is the least intrusive spot to take a break this week. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. And we are back. Hope it wasn't too bad. Now let's meet the prospect killer's very murderous kin. The Kansas City Star gathered information about Terry's family through newspaper articles, court records, and other public documents. and gave us a real nice overview of the many, many serious crimes committed by other Blair family members to set the stage for the background of Terry's home and family life. Painted quite the picture. Terry's dad uh, might as well have been a rooster bogle. Cock-a-doodle-doom, motherfucker. On August 16, 1978, when Terry was 17 years old, his mother, 38-year-old Janice Blair, shot and killed her common-law husband, Elton Gray. 41-year-old Elton, shot once in the head at point-blank range, died at the hospital. Detectives offered the following account to the press. After a loud vocal exchange inside the Chestnut residence, Gray, his stepson, and the woman in custody were walking out the front door about 12.30 a.m. when a shot rang out. Gray fell to the floor of the hallway and the woman ran from the house. The stepson notified police of the shooting and called an ambulance. About 30 minutes later, police received a call about a person armed with a gun near 24th and Prospect. Two officers who were aware the call might be related to the Chestnut Street homicide saw the woman yelling and waving a gun in the air. The officers took cover behind their vehicle and ordered the woman to throw down the weapon. The woman ignored the officers and screamed that a man was directly across the street holding her nephew at gunpoint with a shotgun. When the officer discovered that no one armed with a shotgun was in the vicinity, they again ordered her to surrender. The woman dropped the weapon and was taken to police headquarters for questioning. Damn, that was was quite the spectacle. And Terry Blair is the stepson referred to in that statement. Imagine being a part of what he witnessed. Uh, Missouri doesn't legally recognize common law marriages regarding Elton being referred to as Terry's common law stepdad. So sources, uh, they don't say exactly how long Elton and Janice were together, but in general, it's believed that cohabitating for at least seven to 10 years leads to uh, a common law marriage. So let's say that that's how long they were together, seven to 10 years. Odds are Elton was Terry's de facto stepdad for all of his primary identify uh, or identity forming teenage and preteen years. This dude was essentially his dad. He grew up with him. In interviews of Terry, I've watched when he speaks of what his life was like growing up. He never refers to his dad, only his stepdad. And 
I mean, barely refers to his dad, barely, barely, barely. And, and not in the sense of like, you know, part of his childhood. And when he's talking about stepdad, he's talking about Elton. There was no other primary, you know, father figure. And his mom shot this dude in the head directly in front of him as he was walking out of the apartment with this guy at half past midnight. Was he trying to walk him to safety? Was he on Elton's side of the argument? Was he worried about his mom killing Elton? Was he worried about his mom also killing him? I don't know. But I do know he called the police and an ambulance, didn't try and cover up any of this. So he wasn't, I'm strongly assuming, down with this happening. How fucking traumatic, right? So hard for me to imagine how that would feel. If Terry got therapy for this, uh, sources do not say. I'm, I'm going to say he did not. This happened in 1978. And with him being raised as, you know, he stated after his arrest in a lot of poverty. No, he didn't. Highly fucking doubt he ever saw a therapist. What kind of recurring nightmares, PTSD, etc., would that life experience give you? That would fuck me up. Unless there was a damn good reason for her doing that. And there wasn't. She was uh, suffering some severe mental illness. I would not be able to have anything remotely resembling a normal relationship with my mom going forward after that. Right, that one move would have essentially orphaned me in such a tragic way, just overnight. And I should add, Elton was rumored to have been a longtime drug dealer in newspaper clippings uh, about this, uh, you know, uh, time. So who knows what crimes he exposed Terry and Terry's siblings to growing up as well? Maybe he was Terry's rooster. Uh, Janice Blair would plead guilty to killing Elton Gray, and then she would serve no prison time for doing so. Put on probation for five years uh, due to mental illness. Even with mental illness, that's an insanely light sentence. Uh, why was she given such a light sentence? Well, the prosecutor in the case after Terry's arrested for being a serial killer over 25 years later will say he does not remember why she got off so easy, but he did find it unusual. Uh, okay, now let's meet Walter, Terry's murderous brother, one of his murderous brothers. Several months, uh, well, one of his murderous siblings, excuse me, several months after his stepdad's murder, a few months after Terry turned 18, Terry's older brother, Walter Blair Jr., born a year before Terry almost to the day, charged in the first of two murders. 16-year-old Sandy L. Shannon shotgunned in the back during a robbery. Walter was charged with capital murder, robbery, and assault for her death, held in the Jackson County Jail from January 22nd to July 16th, 1979. Then charges against him are dropped because eyewitnesses refused to testify. Walter's released on bond for carrying a concealed weapon. A few months later, Walter kills again. This time, uh, the charges are going to stick. He kills 21-year-old Catherine Joe Allen. Kathy was a rape victim and her rapist hired Walter in prison to take her out before she could testify against him. It's fucking cold-blooded. While Walter was in jail for Sandy's murder, uh, being, after being charged with it, he was approached by fellow inmate Larry Jackson. Jackson was being held in jail for the alleged rape of Kathy and some other uh, crimes. Jackson was referred to Blair by other inmates. Uh, as, as far as having a, uh, Blair had a reputation for being able to hold his own not being afraid of anyone. He was a well-known tough guy, a guy who would kill if you paid him enough. He held this reputation already by the age of 18. Jackson offered Blair $2,000 to kill Kathy and he quickly agreed. Then on July 16th, 1979, Terry's older brother, Walter, was released on bond. He spoke with Jackson, who was still in jail several times by phone about the proposed murder, got Jackson to raise his offer to six grand. Then on Friday, August 17th, Blair went to watch the, quote, white girl and possibly take her out. Early in the morning of August 18th, Blair walked to the apartment of the victim where he hit across the street, watched for suspicious activity, seen none. He then walked across the street, uh, stood under the apartment window for a second, uh, like the bedroom window, removed the screen, and then snuck on in. Kathy was asleep on a mattress in the living room with her boyfriend. William uh, or, uh, woke them both up, soon ordered Kathy to leave with them. And uh, I think, sorry, I said, I said William there. I meant to say uh, Walter. There we go, Walter. 
I like how he's William. So yeah, orders, orders Cassie to leave with him. Her boyfriend is left behind the survivor's guilt he must have ended up with. Around 6.30 a.m. that same morning, just 20 minutes later, screaming and three gunshots are heard on East 34th Street in Kansas City. At approximately 7 a.m., police find Kathy's dead body in a vacant lot four blocks from Walter Blair's home. She was nude from the waist up, had been shot in the head, chest, and wrist. Nude from the waist up. What the fuck did William do to her before killing her? Uh, subsequent examination of the gunpowder burns around the wounds indicated that the shots had been fired from close range. The body also bore abrasion and lacerations, which are, were consistent with the victim being struck in the head with a fucking brick before her death. Uh, 18-year-old Walter Blair arrested for Kathy's murder, August 22nd, 1979. Police find property from the abduction that led first led to a man who was not a suspect, and then that man gave them info that led to the arrest of Walter. He was charged with capital murder, kidnapping, robbery, burglary, and armed criminal action. Jury selection started for Walter's trial, September 30th, 1980. Judge overseeing the trial was, oh boy, <laughs> not making up this name, Richard P. Sprinkle. That's right, Dick P. Sprinkle. The Honorable Dick Sprinkle. Not even halfway through, and we have ourselves a rooster and a Dick Sprinkle. That's nice. That's real nice. Uh, it was revealed at trial that Walter Blair confessed to murdering Kathy uh, Joe Allen and led police to the evidence used against him at trial. His defense suggested that detectives could have manufactured the evidence to make the confession more believable, but come on. Prosecution read Walter's statement out loud during trial. Walter said that he met Larry Jackson in the summer of 1979, uh, you know, maybe in prison, learned that he was charged with two homicides and a rape. Because Walter had a reputation as someone, again, being able to hold his own, Jackson talked to him about preventing Catherine Joe Allen from testifying against him. After he was released from jail, Walter talked to Jackson's family members about Catherine, continued talking to Jackson over the phone. Jackson and others made a series of threatening phone calls to Kathy to try and keep her from testifying. Walter put in a statement, as the time came closer to the rape trial, Larry raised his price to about 6000 I like how Walter acts like, like Larry did this, not him. Like, I was, I was willing to kill her for a few grand, but fucking crazy Larry. He insisted. He wanted to pay me six. Uh, Walter's statement indicated that he hadn't decided to do it until he learned that Larry's brother and some friends made bombs and were going to throw them into Catherine's apartment. And then Walter, being such a great fucking guy, said he was going to kidnap Catherine and just hold her and just keep her safe until the rape charges were dismissed. That's all. You know, everybody wins. He claimed that on the day of the murder, he repeatedly told Catherine and her boyfriend she was not going to be harmed. And you know, he meant it. Of course he did. But then Kathy made him kill her. This was seriously his, uh, his angle. He said they drove to a vacant lot, got out of the car. You know, they're just going to hang out in a vacant lot early in the morning, as one does. Uh, there, Catherine begged Walter not to kill her, saying, I just don't want to die. Don't kill me. And Walter claimed, still not going to kill her. No, because he's a great guy. He was just going to, again, hang out with her in a vacant lot or something for, I don't know, several days. None of this makes sense. But then she came for him and he had to defend himself. The two got into a struggle over the gun. Yeah, Walter fired a shot, but missed. Two more shots were fired somehow, and now Catherine's on the ground. Walter said he saw blood on her face. <laughs> this is how fucking crazy this guy is. But also said that she was fine, more or less. You know, just a flesh wound. And then he ran away. Yeah, he ran away with her purse. Okay, he did steal her purse, but he left her kind of unharmed. Uh, then he talked to Larry Jackson the next day, and Jackson told him he appreciated what I'd done, and he loved me like a brother. And the defense now argued that Walter was framed for the actual murder. When he left Kathy in that vacant lot where he kind of sort of shot her maybe in the face, she was okay. She was peachy. But then someone else, who the fuck knows who, came along and done killed her. This is his fucking defense. Walter testified he was home during the murder, asleep, or maybe writing an autobiography. He seriously said, I might have been home. I might have been home working on my autobiography. Fucking what? 
This dude's 18 when this happens. And no one knows who the fuck he is outside of one tiny neighborhood or cares. Why would he be writing an autobiography? Who is the head of his defense team? Fucking rooster? My advice, Walt, say whatever you want to say. Have fun with it. Because you know what? It doesn't matter. You are going to prison. When you hired Rooster Bogle, you were cockadoodle doom, my friend. I picture Rooster being a lawyer and that being on Rooster's business card. Need a new lawyer? Hire Rooster Bogle and get cockadoodle doomed. Uh, Walter now said the detectives forced him to give oral, written, and video confessions by putting a rifle against his head in the interrogation room. Fucking what? A rifle? Why would they use a rifle in that situation? That seems very dramatic. Could they have roughed him up with their hands? Yeah, yeah, maybe that's happened. Sure, of course. Waved a handgun around, made him think that they were going to shoot him. I mean, not likely in an interrogation room in front of everybody, but maybe, but a fucking rifle? Get the fuck out of here. Again, that sounds like Rooster coached him. Come on, man, say rifle. Oh, man, sounds cool as shit if you say rifle. On October 16, 1980, Walter Blair was, of course, found guilty of capital murder. Then the jury voted to sentence him to death on October 17, 1980. 32-year-old Walter Blair would be executed by lethal injection July 21, 1993. He had a long rap sheet before these uh, crimes I mentioned, too, by the way. Backing up a bit to connect this to Terry now. When he's just 17, his mom blows his common-law stepdad's brains out as he's walking that guy out of their home. Then just a few months after turning 18, less than six months after his mom kills his stepdad, his older brother, Walter, only barely a year older than him. They were, they were close growing up. He did, did say that later in an interview. Uh, gets charged with killing some 16-year-old, but gets away with it a few months later because the witnesses are too afraid he'll probably fucking kill them too. Then nine months later, when Terry's just 18, Walter gets arrested for killing a 21-year-old rape victim to keep her from testifying. What the fuck does that do to your mind? Nothing good. And then when Terry's only 19, his brother's found guilty, sentenced to death. Now let's move on to one of uh, Terry's sisters. His older sister, Warnetta, born five years before he was. She'll kill someone in 1980 as well. 32-year-old James L. Bell, found dead in his home on Prospect Avenue. September 27th, 1980, he was found on the floor and he had been stabbed 30 fucking times with a kitchen knife. My God. Friends found him when he failed to show up for work. Prosecutors believe Bell was murdered to collect a $10,000 life insurance policy. How fucking disgusting. How sad. May of 1981, Terry's sister, now 25-year-old, Warnetta Blair, charged with the brutal capital murder of Bell. When charged, this piece of shit was already in custody for the first-degree assault of a mentally disabled man. She was accused of immersing this poor bastard into a tub of near-boiling, scalding water because he had, quote, squealed to police. Poor guy suffered second- and third-degree burns all over his body. James Bell worked in an upholstery shop owned by Nola White III, Warnetta's husband, at the time of his murder. Police say, uh, police sources indicated that Bell expressed fear for his life to at least one person before he was killed. Warnetta's husband, Nola White, Nathaniel Williams, her cousin, also charged with Bell's murder. Warnetta agreed to testify against her husband in exchange for having the charges dropped against her, but state law prohibited her from testifying against him because they're married. So Warnetta immediately files for divorce, but soon learns that she's pregnant. May 3rd, 1984, Nola White uh, III pleads guilty to second-degree murder. White insisted he only helped plan the murder to collect a life insurance policy but didn't commit the murder. Warnetta did. He was charged with two counts of capital murder. First capital murder charge is dismissed when the key uh, key witness refuses to testify. Why did this witness refuse to testify? Probably because this witness had been literally shot, threatened with death, and, not done, had the heads of several of her pets cut the fuck off. Not kidding. Her fucking pets were decapitated. Sorry, Bojangles. White was charged again with capital murder, though, when uh, Warnetta agrees to testify against him, also testify against her cousin, Nathaniel Williams, also Terry's cousin, obviously, uh, charged in this case. 
So White charged once more in March of 1984. White claims he just drove Warnetta and Nathaniel to the apartment. And then they came back to the upholstery shop 20 minutes later saying, you know, they stabbed the shit out of Bell. Williams testified that White tried to poison Bell earlier by giving him a poison bottle of port wine. Bell drank it, but survived. Williams' charge was reduced to manslaughter with no prison time. What the fuck? Warnetta ended up free on bond due to her pregnancy. Okay. Prosecutors kept the agreement to dismiss the charge against her, even if she did not testify. Uh, Nola White sentenced 12 years in prison. And then the whole matter was done. So by the time Terry's 20, his sister and brother have murdered people. If you think Warnetta had something to do with Bell's murder, which I do, she'll for sure kill someone else by the end of the decade. And of course, his mom has killed his stepdad. And God knows how many other violent crimes his siblings have committed, but just never been charged with, you know, for. The rest of his family's crimes will now be committed after Terry himself becomes a convicted murderer in 1982. His family's so fucked. Now for the details of the other murder Warnetta for sure committed. December 10th, 1989, the body of Warnetta's boyfriend at the time, Pablo Gomez, found bound and gagged in their shared apartment on East 30th Street. Pablo died of suffocation because the gag covered his mouth and nose. Pablo had been wrapped in a blanket on a bed. His head was covered by a pillowcase, hands tied up with a belt, sponge stuffed into his mouth. On December 15th, 1989, Warnetta is charged with his second degree murder. Prosecutor said that Warnetta killed her boyfriend, a known drug dealer from Cuba, because he had threatened to cut off her supply of crack. Warnetta said that she and a male accomplice did kind of do some shit that led to Pablo's death, but that she didn't mean to kill him. She said they only tied him up to take his drugs and money. No big deal. And then the two went to a neighbor's apartment, said they messed up Pablo, and then smoked a bunch of crack because, you know, it's, it's fucking crack. Uh, on August 23rd, 1990, Warnetta pled guilty to second degree murder and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Warnetta Blair left prison in December of 1999 and according to the internet, uh, is living currently in Kansas City. Uh, you can look up her address pretty easily. You, you can probably find her, go talk to her about uh, all this if you feel like risking getting murdered. She's 66 now, so she's probably not as good at killing as she used to be. Her fucking stabbing arm, probably, you know, a lot weaker. But a member of the next generation of Blairs could very well be living with her and their murders too. At least some of them. At least one of her kids. I wouldn't risk it. I'm going to share some of the criminal exploits of three of Warnetta's kids here in a bit. First, let me introduce you to two more siblings, starting with Terry's half-brother, a convicted rapist currently in prison with no chance of parole, someone who tried to murder one of his rape victims. In 1994, Terry's older half-brother, Clifford S. Miller, convicted of abducting and shooting and raping a woman in Kansas City outside a bar at 29th and Prospect, June 5th, 1992. This shit is fucking savage. Cannot find a date of birth for this monster. Uh, just listed as being older than Terry. So another one of his, uh, another one of his role models. Per court records, June 5th, 1992, Angela Hunter left Jimmy's Steakhouse on 2901 Prospect Avenue after it closed. Jimmy's Steakhouse, that sounds like a good steakhouse to me, right? Fucking, fucking Jimmy. Jimmy has to have uh, grilled up a good steak, right? Well, maybe Jimmy's gone now. It's no longer around. Uh, Ms. Hunter estimated that she left the bar at approximately 3.20 a.m., but it could have been earlier. As she went out to her car, a man driving a dark Camaro or a Trans Am pulled up beside her. The man pointed a gun at her head, told her to get in the car. As she struggled with him, the gun went off. Bullets struck her in the arm. Miss Hunter, now driven by her attacker, to a house at 2520 Olive, still in the Prospect neighborhood. At the house, her attacker orders her to perform oral sex upon him, keeping the gun pointed at her head. And you're hearing all this right. This motherfucker makes her give him a blowjob with a gun to her head after he's already shot her in the arm. And, and he shot her bad enough to destroy one of her bones, by the way. This shit is savage. The man told Ms. Hunter to go up the stairs and when they reached the top of the porch, he once again forced her to perform oral sex. My God! This is a second quick blowjob while she's bleeding from a massive bullet wound. Clearly her pain turns him on or he just gives such, just no fucks about her. 
that whatever just does, doesn't matter. She's just an object. Uh, the man, Terry's half brother, Cliff, then hits her in the head with his gun hard, leaves her dazed and drifting in and out of consciousness. After falling off the porch, Miss Hunter now makes her way down the street naked and bloody, attempting to get help. Eventually, she knocks on the door at 2453 Olive. The person at that house calls the police. She's taken to the Truman Medical Center, where she will remain recovering for two and a half months. In addition to the serious gunshot wound to her arm, Ms. Hunter also had a fractured skull, broken jaw, and smashed cheekbones. Yeah, he hit her hard with that gun, and multiple times. Did not care if she lived or died. She had to have her teeth straightened later. One of the bones in her arm was partially replaced with metal. Police found a blood trail leading back to 2520 all the night she was assaulted. No one was apprehended for the crime at that time, but police found a large amount of blood, some woman's clothing, later identified to be Miss Hunter's uh, at the house 2520 Olive. 11 months later, eight months after getting out of the hospital for all this, she goes out to a bar and she sees Terry's half-brother Chris again. Or rather, Chris sees her. And how fucked up is this? Chris walks up to her, grabs her arm, tells her, it's been a long time. This guy's a fucking psychopath. How many other women had he hurt by this point? Thank God one of her friends now calls the police. They come to the bar, arrest Clifford Miller, who doesn't even bother leaving the bar after knowing that she's there. Uh, He is later convicted of forcible sodomy, assault, kidnapping, and armed criminal action. And he is sentenced to life plus 240 years. He was hit with an especially lengthy sentence because this was far from the first time this dude had been arrested. He had a record uh, with charges like robbery, unlawful uh, use of a weapon, possession of a controlled substance, and many, many other crimes. Now let's briefly meet just one more of Terry's brothers. Sources do not indicate his age. Not sure if he's older or younger. Also a real nice, uh, gentle guy compared to the other brothers you've met. In December of 1999, Terry's brother, Daniel Blair, uh, pleaded guilty to helping someone possess 50 grams or more of cocaine with the intent to sell. Daniel and another man were selling crack out of the accomplice's mother's house within 1,000 feet of an elementary school. He was sentenced to eight years and four months in prison. Uh, Daniel had already been arrested and convicted of things like assault, displaying weapons, uh, stealing, robbery, various drug offenses, obstructing an officer, etc. So many arrests in one family. Okay, now it's promised. We will meet three of Warnetta's children, three of Terry's nephews, two of which are also convicted murderers. That's right. I said one of them. I forgot. Fucking two of her kids are... My God, Diamond Blair, born in 1975, was uh, first sent to juvenile court for stealing when he was just six years old. Between 1987 and 1991, he appeared in juvenile court again and again for assault, stealing cars, running away from the McCune School for Boys and more. June of 91, Diamond was placed in the custody of the Missouri Division of Youth Services. Almost immediately escaped from a state detention center, was not captured again until October. Authorities believe he committed six armed robberies, one unarmed robbery, one rape, and two assaults during just those few months of running around. In November of 1991, Diamond was ordered to stand trial as an adult despite being only 16 for the July 5th, 1991 robbery of a pizza delivery driver. Diamond and two other men grabbed the driver by the throat while he was delivering a pizza, stole 200 bucks and three large pizzas from him. June 5th, 1992, Diamond received six separate sentences for two counts of first-degree robbery, unlawful use of a weapon, armed criminal action, kidnapping, and forcible sodomy. The longest sentence was 18 years for each count of first-degree robbery. Diamond was released from prison for all this sometime prior to 2009. And then that year, he would murder 22-year-old Montague Kevin Ashland, or Ashline, shot him in a robbery. Between 2009 and 2014, when he'd be convicted for Ashline's murder, he'd also be arrested and sent to prison for 23 years for a variety of charges. Now he'll never get out of prison. For Ashline's murder, he received two life sentences. Two more nephews. And then after all this murder, we'll get into Terry's crimes. 
Backing up to 1991, a month after the pizza delivery robbery, Terry's nephew slash Diamond's brother, 16-year-old William C. Blair, is sentenced to 15 years first-degree robbery. He was released September 28, 2003. Within a few months following his release, he was arrested again. And get this, charged with 88 fucking counts of robbery. <laughs> My God! In a couple months, 88 counts of robbery, assault, and armed criminal action for, quote, a series of brazen holdups of bars, a convenience store, and a karate studio. Because why not? <laughs> Just gonna fucking hold up a dojo. Uh, one liquor store employee was shot during that crime spree. Various bar patrons were also pistol whipped, kicked, and beaten in a variety of other ways. This dude is so lucky. He also didn't end up murdering someone. On October 7, 2004, William pleaded guilty to 17 counts of first-degree robbery, 19 counts of armed criminal action, one count of attempted robbery, and one count of first-degree assault. 50 other charges were dropped. He'll also never get out of prison. He was given life with no possibility of parole. Thank God. And then the last one now, another murderer. (laughs) On August 7, 2001, another one of Terry's nephews, half-brother of William and Diamond, 21-year-old Nola White IV, charged with first-degree murder and armed criminal action for killing someone we've already met, killing his dad, Nola White III, in his dad's store. Prosecutors allege that he shot his father after an argument over money. Nolda White III was shot in the head, his wallet taken, and the killer searched his store for money. Yeah, and if you'll recall, Nola White III, a convicted murderer, went to prison for a dozen years for killing his upholstery employee, James Bell. Someone Warnetta also, you know, helped kill or maybe did kill. There's so many fucking murders in this family. It's hard to keep track of who killed who. And now one family killer has murdered another family killer. An employee told the police that the younger Nola came to the store a few days earlier, asked his dad for money, which he did regularly. His dad told him to leave. The employee left for short time, uh, left a short time later. And then the younger Nola came back and killed his dad while this employee was gone. In 2002, Nola White uh, IV pled guilty to murdering Nola White III, sentenced to 30 years. His next parole hearing is set for 2025. So that's great. So he could, he could be out soon. Awesome. Shortly after being imprisoned on September 24th, 2004, Nola White IV spoke with the Kansas City Star about his fucking family. Said he didn't have much contact with his relatives when he was young. At age five or six, he was taken from his mother's custody. That would be Warnetta. Put into group homes, uh, into group homes, foster homes, state facilities. He reunited with his family when he was 18. Said that at the time, he received little positive guidance. What? Little positive guidance from the Blairs? Come on, get out of here. Uh, he said that when he tried to ask his family for help, they ignored him. White told the star, I would say I never had a banking account, so why don't you show me? It was like talking to a wall. After a while, you get tired of being rejected. That's fucked up, but it doesn't sound like the best reason to kill his dad. Uh, just more evidence of how completely fucked up this family is. Terry Blair, not an anomaly in his family, which is weird to say about a serial killer. No, he fit right in. And all these people committed all these crimes in Kansas City around Prospect Avenue, it seems. They lived near each other. I-, I wonder if they had a lot of extended family get-togethers. How fucked up were the conversations at those gatherings? Generally, most therapists will argue in favor of keeping close family ties. It's important in regards to your mental health. Most of the time. But sometimes one of the best things you can do for your mental health is to cut ties with your family completely, get far, far away from a bunch of really toxic people and start over somewhere else. Like if, you're, if your dad is fucking rooster, you might be better off just to not have a dad. And cutting ties from a good chunk of this family, the Blairs, if not, you know, all of them might be the best way to give yourself a chance for success in life. I don't know what most of them have been up to, but based on what little Terry has said, doesn't sound like the family has had many uh, positive influences in recent decades. So much darkness. And Terry may have ended up becoming the darkest member of the murderous Blair clan. Let's look into his horrific crimes now in today's Time Suck Timeline. 
Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Terry Anthony Blair was born in Kansas City September 16, 1961. The fourth of ten children, his family consisted of six boys and four girls. Nothing is mentioned in any sources regarding the identity of his birth father. Not even his Wikipedia page lists a section about his childhood. Nothing. That is not typical. Uh, we at least know a bit about his mom, as I've already laid out. The only additional info I have on Janice is that her full name is uh, Janice Billy Blair, and she only completed school through the ninth grade and, as stated previously, suffered from some type of serious mental illness. Terry had a parole officer, uh, or told, excuse me, a parole officer that he was raised in poverty. Uh, he's never said too much about his childhood. He's been interviewed by a couple of podcasters in recent years and has said shit like that his, uh, you know, his childhood was normal. I don't think he fully understands what the uh, word normal means in the context of family, at least. Uh, never claimed any form of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, or otherwise. Not that that means it never happened. Like his mother, Terry did not finish high school. Seems to have dropped out of Lincoln High School before his senior year. That school during Kansas City's long days of segregation was an all-black high school. Somehow did not become desegregated until the fall of 1978. Terry was gone by then. He was no longer attending in the summer of 78 when his mom killed his stepdad. That high school no longer exists by that name. Uh, It transformed into Lincoln College Preparatory Academy in 1986. Following high school and during it, uh, I would guess, if Terry ever had an honest job of any kind, it's literally never mentioned. Based on his family's history, uh, with so much robbery. Well, I I say never mentioned, at the end of the episode, I'll I'll give over some quotes he gave. And he makes vague allusions to some kind of work, but I I don't believe him. I don't believe uh, that he actually held the regular job uh based on his family's history with so much robbery allegations of a variety of drug dealers existing inside the family described in one source as one of kansas city's most notorious crime families i'm assuming that he made his money in less than legal ways also he only ever spent a few years of his adult life outside of prison he never had to cover bills for that long maybe he mooched off of uh some women he dated maybe off the government uh maybe some drug dealing something i don't know May 15th, 1982, now 20-year-old Terry Blair calls the police to report that his former girlfriend, 19-year-old Angela Moore, somehow ended up beaten to death. I wish I knew how it happened, officers. We were hanging out, engaged in some wholesome family fun, and then she ended up, you know, beaten to death. Uh, Weird. Angela's body was found dead behind the Linmont Apartments on Linwood Boulevard. Angela Monroe had two children with Terry, his sons Terry Blair Jr. and Marcel Johnson. She was also uh, seven months pregnant with their third child when she was murdered. Sad on so many levels. Sad that uh, at 19, she was about to have her third child. Sad she got roped into the Blair family, gave birth to Terry's kids. Uh, It says they're both Terry's kids, even though the one had the name Johnson. Sad, obviously, that she was murdered before the age of 20. Uh, She was a part-time employee of Captain D's Seafood Restaurant when she died, and obviously a full-time mom. The very next day, on May 16th, Terry was arrested for Angela's murder. He was charged with second-degree murder. Angela had died from extensive head injuries. The two got into an argument on the morning of the murder. Terry initially blamed another person for the murder, but then admitted that he did it because he was angry that Angela was doing sex work. Said he confronted her about it. She tried to get away from him. He then picked up an actual stick and then beat her and left her behind a building. Literally beat her to death with a stick while she was seven months pregnant. Later denied making the confession, uh, blamed somebody else, but the man Terry tried to frame for murdering Angela had a strong alibi. Six months later, November 10th, 1992, Terry Blair is convicted of second-degree murder. Jury recommends a 25-year sentence. Not sure why he wasn't also charged with the death of his unborn child uh, since the baby did not make it. 
Terry Blair now serves 20 of the 25, well, about 21 of the 25 years uh, before being released from prison on parole in May of 2002. He goes to a facility in Kansas City, a halfway house that helps individuals on parole get reintegrated into society in a better world. Maybe Terry would have not been released early. Uh, During his two decades in prison, he received 67 conduct violations for fighting, assault, disobeying orders, possessing contraband, being in restricted areas. He averaged three violations a year, which is actually slightly less than normal. Uh, you know, the, the normal was, uh, or the norm was four a year for the majority of inmates. Once released, he quickly tested positive for weed, ran away from the facility, got caught, got sent back to prison for another year. The Blairs, man, they did not waste time committing crime. <laughs> Surprised he didn't try and mug the officer to let him out of prison on the way out. May 20th, 2003, Terry returned to the Kansas City Community Release Center, back to the halfway house, assigned to stay there until August 8th, 2003, a month after he's kind of free again, June 30th, the body of 45-year-old Sandra Reed found in a building in the 2800 block of Park Avenue. Uh, this is in the Prospect Avenue area. She had died of a broken neck and strangulation. The Kansas City Star would report, little is known about Reed. Like many of the other victims, she lived what police called a high-risk life associated with drugs, prostitution, or both. Sandra had nine convictions for soliciting for immoral purposes on a record between 1975 and 2003. Also been convicted of trespassing, drug possession, and prostitution in 1992. Friends called her Sandy. While Blair would later be charged with her murder, this charge would be dismissed. Shortly after her murder, Terry violates his parole again. Uh, Weed. Back to prison he goes for a little bit. January 21st, 2004, Terry paroled again. Back to the halfway house in Kansas City. Just a month later, uh, February 23rd, Terry bounces, uh, just leaves, violates parole, and a warrant is issued for his arrest. Now he'll hide out with relatives long enough to kill a bunch of women over the summer. Uh, Terry mostly hides out with his mom and sister, in the summer of 2004, a little bit with his grandma, but mostly mom. Sweet, sweet Mama Blair. Sweet, very unhinged, murderous Janice, nurturing heart of the cuddly Blair brood. What could go wrong under her watchful maternal eye? Janice lived right on Prospect Avenue and her sister, uh, his sister, excuse me, Terry's sister, uh, unnamed in newspaper uh, accounts, lived in the neighborhood as well over on West Bluff. Important to the man who lived above his mom, a pimp known as T, often let sex workers sleep and shower at his apartment. And it's thought this is how that Terry came into contact with many of his victims. Uh, Terry's grandma also lived nearby on Olive Street. Uh, Early in the morning of July 14th, 2004, a maintenance worker finds a dead woman's body on an apartment complex property on 23rd Street. She was lying between one of the buildings and some bushes close to a parking lot near a raised concrete pad covered by brush. The body would be quickly identified as 42-year-old Anna Ewing. Anna was found wearing a bra and a knitted garment was around her neck but was otherwise naked. Uh, Several personal belongings were found nearby, scattered around. Her legs and feet were muddy and she had abrasions on her arm and bruises on her shoulder. She was still bleeding from a cut above her eyebrow and the white of her eye was bleeding. A test for saliva would be done on her left breast. The test results will indicate that a single allele found in the DNA included Terry Blair as a contributor. Uh, DNA was also taken from blood under her fingernails. Anna was a uh, major contributor and Terry Blair was a minor contributor. And his death was initially considered a, uh, a cocaine overdose for reasons I do not fucking understand based on how she was found. A few months later in September, her cause of death will be changed to homicide. She's found in the same area as future victims. And by September, her death will be considered related to the deaths of numerous other women. And it was killed just a few days after she had left prison. She'd been incarcerated off and on since she was a kid. Anna Ewing was first arrested for larceny when she was just 17. Other citations for drug possession and solicitation followed. 
She was convicted of drug charges in 1998. She would receive probation, then be charged with prostitution and have her probation revoked and sentenced to three years in prison. Ah, I hate this. I I am a thousand percent against punishment for either drug possession or sex work, right? White collar wealthy criminals destroy the lives of, say, uh, a whole bunch of recent retirees by fucking over their company's financials via embezzlement or whatever. And they often get no prison time, very little. They can afford great attorneys. But someone barely fucking scraping by on the bottom rung of society. Someone, say, selling their body for drug money and the government is going to punish them further? Add to their already enormous struggles? They're already punishing themselves. Life is fucking punishing them. To pile on does not make you some bastion of justice. In my eyes, this makes you a bully. How exactly do these type of criminal charges help society in literally any way? How is it anything other than just picking on the poor and the downtrodden? Uh, Anna was released on July 4th. Police believe she was killed on July 12th. Uh, This poor woman, she had six children. Her obituary stated that she would be remembered for her loving smile and her giving heart. Fuck. Uh, Terry will be convicted later in Anna's death. Next, it seems Terry attacks Aaliyah Howard. A month later, August 18th, 2004, Terry Blair uh, commits first-degree assault against Aaliyah Howard. Aaliyah Howard, excuse me. Blair choked her, and according to his later indictment, Such conduct was a substantial step toward the commission of the crime of attempting to kill or cause serious physical injury to Aaliyah Howard, as was done for the purpose of committing an assault. Uh, Aaliyah's age not listed in sources. September 2nd, 2004, the Kansas City Police Department finds two bodies inside a garage at 26th Street and Montgall Avenue, just two blocks off Prospect. A passerby flagged down an officer to report a foul odor, odor, excuse me, coming from the garage. The officer saw the first body. Investigators who responded to the scene found a second body hidden underneath the first. The long-running A&E true crime show, The First 48, uh, began airing in June of 2004, followed the Kansas City Police Department during their investigation of these murders. The show was created to offer an inside look at the real-life world of homicide investigators. While the series often follows the investigations to their end, usually focuses on their first 48 hours, hence the, the title. Each episode picks one or more homicides in different cities, covering each alternately, showing how detectives use forensic evidence, witness interviews, and other advanced investigative techniques to identify suspects. While most cases are solved within the first 48 hours, some go on days, weeks, months, even years after the first 48, obviously. show is still airing new episodes, it seems. The name comes from police training on homicide investigations, historically suggesting in the past few decades that the first 48 hours are the most important time period in a homicide investigation. One study that came out around this time, uh, around the time of the show's debut, illustrated that regarding homicide clearance rates and about half of solved homicides, the suspect is apprehended within the first 48 hours and up to 70% are apprehended within the first week. And in Kansas City, in the summer 2004, this show just happened to end up covering an investigation that would lead to the capture of the prospect killer. As recorded in the season two debut episode of the first 48, p.m. on September 2nd, Sergeant Doug Niemeyer from the KCPD was called out to Prospect Avenue. One man had smelled something funny the previous week when he was out mowing grass. Since the property was abandoned, he didn't think much about it at first. But then on the afternoon of the 2nd, someone again noticing a pungent odor in the air enters the garage of the abandoned house, finds two bodies stacked on top of one another. Both of the victims are black females. The body on the bottom was was in an advanced state of decomposition. The one on top was not. The victims had no obvious signs of trauma. Crime scene investigators collected samples from the bodies for further testing. Sergeant Niemeyer asked Detective Steve Morgan to canvas the neighborhood, and he did, but found no witnesses. 
The two victims were soon identified, one of uh, one by her fingerprints, another by a palm print, 45-year-old Patricia Wilson Butler and 38-year-old Sheila McKenzie. By the next morning, it was officially determined that both women were homicide victims. Sheila's prints were in the system due to drug possession and prostitution arrests, also lived in the Prospect Avenue area. It was difficult to identify the second victim because of how decomposed the body was, but investigators were able to recover a palm print from her. And then she was identified as, you know, 45-year-old Patricia Wilson. She too lived on Prospect Avenue. Sheila's mother last saw around 11 a.m. September 2nd, 2004. She'd been killed just hours before investigators found her body. Sheila was found mostly undressed. Her dress and t-shirt were, quote, bunched up around her neck and shoulders. Her neck was broken and there was evidence that she had been strangled. Her blood was found on carpet inside the house nearby, a home under renovation at 2617 Montgall. Investigators found male DNA under her fingernails and semen on her legs. The semen later identified as being Terry Blair's. DNA from both rectal and vaginal swabs also matched Terry Blair. His semen was inside of her. Uh, Terry later denied knowing or having sex with Sheila. Uh, Patricia's death also ruled a homicide because her body was concealed. Patricia's blood also found smeared on the kitchen floor at 2617 Montgall, where Sheila's blood was also found. Uh, While DNA evidence did not link him to the second body, Terry was eventually identified as the killer because he put Sheila's body on top of Patricia's body, which meant that he knew where Patricia's dead body was located. Why? Well, in all likelihood, because he fucking killed her and also hit her there. Uh, Sheila McKenzie was a mother. She had two teenage sons at the time of her death. Spring before her murder on April 2nd, uh, Sheila had pleaded guilty to drug possession with intent to sell. She was sentenced to probation. June 17th, she was cited again, this time for allegedly biting some dude's hand. Some kind of assault charge. Patricia was killed right as she was starting to get her life back. And uh, sorry, I said uh, Butler and I also said uh, Wilson. There was This is one of these ones again, like, kind of like last uh, week, where we had to patch it together from so, so many different uh, articles and sources. Let me make sure I'm using the right last name. Oh, yeah. Patricia Wilson Butler. Okay. So I didn't say anything. Uh, Wilson's her middle name. Patricia Wilson Butler. Let's get to her story now. Excuse me for that. Just want to just want to be uh, accurate as I go through these and things get stuck in my brain. Uh, yeah, she was killed right as she was starting to get her life back on track. She had three children. She had married a man named Kevin Butler a dozen years before March 30th, 1992. And she had recently completed a rehab program around the time of her death after years of struggling. She'd been arrested numerous times, going back to 1990 for solicitation and drug possession. Her family last saw her August 16th. The family tried to file a missing person report four days after she disappeared, but police refused to take it, according to her dad, Sam Wilson. Sam told the Kansas City Star, I would tell her to be careful out there in those streets. There are a lot of bad people out there. She would tell me she was with friends. It has really shook us all up. She was such a nice person. I can't figure out why anyone would want to harm her. Patricia's daughter, Latricia Wilson, later told KMBC, Kansas City's local ABC affiliate, my mother was a very quiet person. She was a kind person. She would give you the shirt off her back if she had it to give. According to KMBC reporter Dan Weinbaum, Patricia had celebrated with her family the day before she disappeared. Her mom, Lily Wilson, said, we all played dominoes and enjoyed each other. We had a really good time. Patricia didn't come home from a doctor's appointment on August 16th. Her mom knew something was wrong. She said, I kept saying, you know, something's wrong. She would come home if she could. I could just feel it in my heart. There was something wrong. And then on September 3rd, 2004, another woman's body is found at 29th and Park, three blocks off a prospect. Her skeletal remains discovered behind a vacant lot, or excuse me, vacant house at uh, 2905 Park after an unidentified man called 911. The body was lying in an overgrown area covered with carpet and brush. Death was ruled a homicide because the body had been concealed. 
The 911 caller spoke to police at 10.39 p.m. that evening. The victim would later be identified as Carmen Hunt. The caller used a deactivated cell phone with no SIM card, which meant there was no number to identify the phone. However, all phones have an international mobile equipment identifier that will allow them to call 911. At least all the phones this time. The caller said the body was in the backyard of the house. When asked how he knew the location of the body, he answered, I put it there. He refused to identify himself. But the caller, of course, was Terry Blair. When he asked again how he knew the body was there, he said, because I put the two on 25th and Montgall, and I put that there. The caller said the body was in the backyard of an abandoned house, and then it was all the way to the fence by the alley, buried up under tree branches. Been there for about two months. He didn't know the victim's name, but uh, said he knew she was a sex worker. After he confirmed that he killed the other two women who were found at 25th and Montgall, the previous two bodies we just discussed, he hung up. The following is the conversation between the caller and the 911 dispatcher retrieved from Terry's court documents. So, Terry, I want to report a dead body. Where? On 29th and Park. 29th and Park? In the backyard at the Northeast House on the corner. Northeast House on the corner? Yeah. How do you know it's a dead body there? I, I put it there. What's your name? Oh, no. Have them look up under the branch. Look up under what? The bushes by the alley. Look up under the bushes by the alley? Yeah. How do you know the body's there? Because I put the two on 25th and Moncal and I put that there. Who is this person? I don't know her name. Where'd you meet her at? She's a prostitute. She was a prostitute? So was the other two killed on 25th and Moncal, prostitutes. And you killed them also? Yeah, maybe. Might've been my mom though, or one of my brothers, or one of my nephews or cousins. Honestly, it's hard to keep track of who killed who. Like when I'm thinking about who I killed, I can't even figure out it half the time. Was it me or was it Diamond? Daniel, Clifford, Rooster, you know what I mean? No, I don't know what you mean, not really. Are you saying someone in your family killed him? 100%. Only because uh, someone from my family has been responsible for nine out of every 10 murders in Kansas City for the past 40 years. Okay, now I gotta run. Uh, I told my mom I'd help her hide a body. Uh, The conversation I just uh, gave was mostly true, all except the last part when Terry started saying maybe it was somebody else in his family. Uh, Detectives went to 29th and Park after receiving the real part of the call. Uh, location just four blocks away from the previous crime scene. At the scene, there was an abandoned house and a body was found under a pile of brush and covered by a carpet. The body had clearly been there for a while. The detectives decided that it was too dark to properly investigate, so they taped off the scene, came back to it the following morning. Is that normal? That seems crazy to me. But it's what happened. Right? Just, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I see her. Uh, you know what? It's not like solving her case tonight is going to bring her back to life. And the, you know what? The chiefs are playing. Let's figure it out in the morning. Come on, drinks are on me. Uh, 40-year-old Carmen Alexander Hunt identified September 13th, 2004, identified by her fingerprints. Carmen was living with her boyfriend at 28th and Park before she disappeared. She was last seen on June 14th, nearly three months before her body was found near 28th and Park, just a block from where her uh, dead body was found hidden. Carmen Hunt had a criminal record for possession of controlled substances and uh, no charges of sex work were on her record, but rumored to have sold sex for drug money like other victims. Uh, Following killing his wife two decades earlier, Terry only seemed to prey on the desperate. On September 4, 2004, two more bodies are found. This time on Prospect Avenue and Olive Street. Terry's not traveling very far to kill. Uh, He didn't have a car at this time, just uh, just killing woman after woman in his neighborhood. At 6.51 p.m., 911 received a call from the same man as before using the same cell phone. Says he called the day before to report bodies. Now he's calling to report two more bodies. He tells the dispatcher that a body could be found at 24th and Prospect in the alley right next to the gate by the U-Haul place. Says the body was covered with black vinyl. 
The woman will later be identified as 25-year-old Darcy Williams. And then he says that the other body can be found at 27th and Olive, covered with brush and pillows. That woman, uh, that woman will later be identified as 31-year-old Claudette Junior. The caller also said that the victims were scum and a disgrace, and then again refused to give his name. He told the dispatcher that the body at 27th and Olive had been there about six weeks, the body at 24th and Prospect only there for about a week. He said, you can smell her. He claimed he didn't know their names, but said he was killing women because they were prostitutes. He said that he was the one who put the bodies at 26th and Montgall. When asked if there were more victims, he mentioned a body found at 23rd and Prospect, thought to be victim Anna Ewing, and added, uh, they find her a long time ago. Here's an excerpt from part of his conversation this time. Blair says, I want to report two more bodies today. The other body is on 27th and Olive, the southeast corner in the backyard in the yard next to the back. Wait, <laughs> uh, this is what he says. The southeast corner house in the backyard in the yard next to the backyard, which is a vacant lot. And the dispatcher says, who are these people that you buried, sir? These people are prostitutes. Okay, why did you kill these prostitutes? Because they are scum. They're what? Scum. They're a disgrace. They're a disgrace. Can you tell me if you buried any more? It was on 23rd and Prospect. They find her a long time ago. Yeah, we, uh, the one on 23rd and Prospect. You did that one too? Yeah, and I have more, he says. Uh, the caller said he would give his name when he calls the next day, and then we'll give the location of more bodies. The medical examiner's office identifies Darcy Williams, found on 24th and Prospect on September 6th. Darcy was adopted when she was a kid, recently started looking for her biological family. How fucking sad. Darcy found lying in some brush outside a fence parking lot. Photos from the scene show two U-Haul banners near her. Body covered by roofing tar paper, not visible at first. Officers had to cut the fence to get to her. A black shirt was found around her neck. Uh, July 13th, 2004, Darcy had pled guilty to drug possession. She was sentenced to two years, but put on probation. Also convicted of possessing drug equipment and refusal to pay a taxi fare. Police think that Darcy was killed on August 28th. Darcy's mother will testify that she met her daughter every week on Wednesdays. The last time she saw Darcy was August 25th. Dropped her off at 25th and Prospect. When she got out of the car, she crossed the street. Approached three men, one of whom she will later identify as Terry Blair. And their mom never heard from Darcy again. Darcy's cause of death thought to be strangulation, but never officially under, uh, uh, you know, ruled. Officially, it's undetermined. The coroner ruled her death a homicide because her body was concealed. Uh, the second body found in a vacant lot, 2745 Olive. It will take a month to identify her. Found naked and covered with couch cushions, sticks, and attire. Police testify they wouldn't have found her if they hadn't gotten information from the caller. Shirt was tied around her neck as well. Uh, her death was ruled a homicide because, again, she was concealed. After the two additional bodies were found, Captain Rich Lockhart told the press, forensically, we have not connected these, but we are investigating them as though they are, as you know, connected. Kansas City Councilwoman Sandra McFadden Weaver said, for some reason, we're in the middle of a mysterious bloodbath. On August 4th, 2004, the body found at 2745 uh, Olive Ave identified as 31-year-old Claudette Junior. Claudette identified by a palm print. Uh, Claudette described as a quiet person who cared about her family. She was lived with her older sister, had taken care of her two nephews since they were babies. At the time of her death, she was wanted on two warrants for alleged possession of narcotics equipment, also wanted for larceny in uh, Grandview, Missouri. Her family last saw her around July 4th. She got into an argument with her family before storming out. Her family thought she was just keeping her distance before they learned of her murder. Uh, September 5th, 2004, police linked previous victim Anna Ewing's death to the five other dead women recently found in Kansas City. Now they know a serial killer is on the loose. Captain Rich Lockhart told the KCPD, uh, or excuse me, and the KCPD, they form a special task force. They assume that the killer is probably watching the news, so they work on a plan regarding how to handle the media. They talk to an FBI agent about what to say to the killer when he calls next. 
Unfortunately, that night, when the 6 o'clock news airs, Fox 4 reveals that the police are tracking the killer by a fucking cell phone. Thanks, Fox. So much for the media plan. The man will never call again. Uh, But they won't need the killer to call again. Since Terry seemed to subscribe to the Rooster Bogle School of Criminality, you're for sure ended up in prison, so fuck it. Uh, Why bother doing a good job of evading capture? Turns out he was talking a lot about killing sex workers in the neighborhood he lived, the neighborhood the sex workers also lived in and were fucking killed in. And he was known to hire these same sex workers frequently. Great way to get caught when the police have just formed a task force to find a serial killer in that area who's killing prostitutes. The day after Fox 4 reveals the police were tracking the killer by cell phone, on September 6th, a woman named Sherry Chadbourne flags down an officer, patrol officer Vern Huth, tells him that a man named Terry has just told her that he was going to kill all prostitutes one by one because they were the scum of the earth. Right, use that word scum again. Terry paid for her sex uh, earlier that summer with her and had been stalking her ever since, even making a point to tell her when he last saw her uh, what she'd been wearing the week before. She was fucking creeped out. Terry also straight up told her he had killed his first wife because she was a sex worker. Terry Blair, not a criminal mastermind. Well, that season two premiere episode of the first 48 shows footage of Cherry uh, telling the police all this. Cherry also knew where Terry was staying uh, with his mom right in the Prospect neighborhood. Officer Vern Huss now calls Detective Buck Williams to give Terry's name and his mom's address at 24th and Prospect. The police search their database for a man named Terry living there. Terry Blair pops up. Blair had been on the run for a parole violation for months now. Detective John Downey pulls the file on Blair's murder case from 1982. He learns that uh, Blair, you know, said after he found out his girlfriend was doing sex work, he beat her to death with a stick and that her bra was found wrapped around her neck. A lot of stuff been wrapped around these victims' necks. Also discovered that her legs and arms were left in similar positions to the limbs of recent victims and that she was left partially covered, right, like the other victims. Terry Blair had also called the police himself back then to report the murder. Obviously, this raises a lot of red flags, all this pointing to uh, Terry. Detective Downey has now found his prime suspect. Meanwhile, other investigators have learned that the phone used to make the two calls and, and a 911 hang-up call on August 30th were a T-Mobile, uh, came from a T-Mobile phone that had been stolen from a maintenance company. There were no more calls from this phone after it was reported that the police were attempting to track the caller after that had been revealed in the news. Officers now do some test calls with the T-Mobile phone from the area around Terry's mom's apartment and also his sister's home, where he was, uh, you know, rumored to also stay. Testing shows that the September 3rd call came from south of a cell tower at 18th and Prospect, Terry's mother's apartment located directly south of that tower. August 30th and September 4th calls came from north of a cell tower located at 3330 Roanoke. Terry's sister lived directly north of that tower. During the September 4th call, the dispatcher could hear children playing in a train horn in the background. There are two playgrounds near Terry's sister's house, one of which was right behind her duplex. The duplex also located very close to some railroad tracks, right? All the pieces fit. Train records and GPS coordinates showed that the train blew its horn at 6.53 p.m. near Terry's sister's house, September 4th, 2004. The 911 call started at 6.51, just two minutes earlier. I love seeing how they put all this together. The next day, September 7th, the KCPD task force looks at missing persons reports, tries to locate as many women as possible while they build their case against Terry Blair. They also look at recent sex crime reports, hoping to find someone who might have seen the killer. Detective Donnie Hoffman and Detective Jeff Downing speak to a woman who was raped at 24th and Prospect three weeks earlier. Her face was blurred out on the uh, first 48, her name not given. The following are some quotes from her interview. The woman said about the attack, and he pulled a switchblade out on me. And he made me touch the tip of the blade. He said he doesn't like women. Downing asked the man, uh, or Downing asked what the man said about prostitutes. And the woman answered, he said that they're no good and that they smoke crack and do all these bad things. 
She added, he's seen that I was clean and everything. And that's what he said. He said, you know, you haven't been working. See, that's what he said to me. He said that I had a good, you know what? And that's the reason why he didn't hurt me. What the fuck? Uh, I have not heard that detail before in any of our uh, serial killer sucks. A killer checking out uh, women's pussies, deciding they deserve to live if they're good and clean. Maybe instead of the prospect killer, he should have been called the busy pussy killer. Probably seen as insulting though to uh, victims. Uh, I get it. Uh, the woman also said that she kept out, she kept passing out because the man was choking her. She didn't get a good look at his face because he pulled her shirt over her face, right? These victims have had a lot of their clothes pulled up over, but she described him as African-American. Most disturbingly, she said the attacker told her when he was all done and everything, he mentioned about that girl getting killed on 23rd in the alleyway there. And he said that I could have been girl number six. Fucking Terry. Following day, September 8th, KCPD detectives Buck Williams and Joe Marinella. Marinella! All right. Uh, And another woman who was attacked off Prospect Avenue a couple weeks earlier. Uh, They, you know, uh, talked to her. Again, Terry just kept attacking women in the same neighborhood, many of them in an area just less than one square mile in size. The first 48 identifies this woman by her first name of Aaliyah. And uh, Aaliyah said that she was sitting in an alleyway when she was attacked by a man. She said, he's choking me and choking me and we fight for a long time. I try to get the thing from around my neck like this. Pretty soon he got tired of using it. So he starts choking me with his hands. All I remember is him picking me up. Well, he choked her unconscious, left her for dead in an abandoned garage. She described her attacker as tall, said, he's real nice. He talks to you like he ain't got nothing to worry about. Uh, And he does have such a laid back, just calm way of speaking. I've watched uh, several interviews. Uh, She described him as African-American man. He was wearing black pants, a zip up jacket, black with the gray stripe on the side. Just a few days before being interviewed, she ran into him for the first time since he attacked her. She said she saw him walking down Prospect Ave, said he walked right past me and he turned around and looked at me like he's seen a ghost. He looked at me like, I thought I killed you. What is you doing walking? And he kept looking back all the way down the street. So I started walking because I recognized him as soon as I looked at his face. I mean, I could never forget what he looked like. Well, Aaliyah later picks out Terry Blair from a photo lineup. Another day later, September 9th, Detective Steve Morgan obtains the unknown caller's phone serial number. Also gets the phone number. He now knows the exact model, when it was made, when it was manufactured. The phone was purchased January 28, 2004. Last call made was June 18th. Phone had been reported lost or stolen prior to Terry using it. They're zeroing in on this guy. Now they just got to find him. The day after identifying the phone, he used to call the police September 10th. Terry Blair's picture is featured on a local newscast as a person of interest in these murders. It will be revealed at his later trial that he was at a friend's house watching that newscast. This friend, female friend, pretends like she does not recognize him. (laughs) Smart. Better than be like, oh shit, fucking Terry, it's you. Uh, But she calls, and then she calls the police as soon as he left the house. Uh, Good on her. I'm sure sure she was fucking terrified that he was going to kill her next. Well, Terry, criminal mastermind, soon returns to her house and hides in her garage. This sounds like some rooster bogle criminal maneuvering here. Yo, if you're ever staying with a friend and and your face shows up on the news and the police trying to find you, you get the fuck out of there before they call the police. And then you come right back a few minutes later and you hide inside the garage. (laughs) That's how you do it. That's the rooster way. Cockadoodle fucking doomed. Uh, Terry's, Terry's friend calls the police again and they arrive shortly thereafter. Find, you know, Terry fucking in the garage. They heard him in there. <laughs> again, he's not a criminal genius. I picture him knocking around some boxes like off a shelf and the police officer's like, who's in the garage? Identify yourself. And then Terry's all like, uh, definitely not Terry Blair in here. Uh-uh, no, no way. Terry is at his mom's house. I'm a nice, innocent guy helping organize some boxes. I'll be on my way. You better hurry. And go get Terry, who is for sure at his mom's house right now. 
Uh, according to te- Detective Anthony Cooper, the woman says that she had recently met Terry through her uncle, and she said that he had been creeping her the fuck out. He told her he liked to date women who enjoyed being beaten and tied up sexually. And you know what? That tracks. That sounds like Terry. Could have been hot if he was referring to some safe BDSM play, but he was not referring to that. Uh, she said they broke things off, but he kept coming by because he's a maniac. The woman also reported that Terry had a phone that was no longer working. He claimed he dropped it and it got run over. Okay. KCPD now attempted to get a confession out of him. They had over 700 pages of information on Terry, Terry's family and associates. None of those pages look good. They had his prison record. Uh, they had witnesses connecting to the murders. They'll soon have DNA evidence as well coming back from the lab. At 4 p.m., detectives Rob Blim and Joe Meranella, they talked to Terry. And he agreed to speak to the police. He looked at pictures of five victims denying having contact with them or being at the locations where they were found. He would later say he recognized Darcy. You know, he'd seen her 10 or 11 days earlier, but he denied ever having sex with her. He denied having sex with any of the victims or any sex workers at all, except for some woman named Peaches. Uh, Well, Peaches had not died. So I guess it was safe to talk about Peaches. Maybe he was proud about Peaches. Uh, He denied making the 911 calls calls earlier that month, said that when the calls were made, he was helping out his uh, mom or maybe staying with his sister. Uh, He did say that he recently gave his sister a a cell phone that he found. Detective Blem told the first 48 producers about the interview, saying, I think he was still playing the game with us. You know, uh, what's what's this about? Why why am I here type stuff? But once we brought up the phone call, his whole body language changed. It was kind of like opening a floodgate. Well, Terry asked for a lawyer after eight hours of interrogation. Probably should have done that after uh, after about fucking eight seconds of interrogation. Uh, September 13, 2004. Testing confirms that semen found on Sheila McKenzie's body does match Terry Blair. Uh, the woman he said he didn't know, never been with her, doesn't recognize her. September 14, 2004, Terry Blair charged with first-degree murder for the death of Sheila. Next week, September 20th, a man approaches the police and tells them that he's found another woman's body. This time in an alley near a vacant lot at 8th Street and Flora Avenue. Uh, Terry traveled a little further this time. This is almost eight blocks away from Prospect Avenue. <clears throat> Excuse me, the body was found covered and, and in an alley similar to the crime scene where two victims were found near 24th and Prospect. On September 27th, the police identified the woman as Nelia Harris, or possibly Nelia, Nelia Harris. She was 34. Earlier that year in April, Nelia had been convicted of cocaine possession and received two years of probation, also been convicted of possessing marijuana and obstructing an officer. Nelia was born in California, raised in Enid, Oklahoma, uh, had moved to Kansas City four to five years earlier to live closer to her mom, Helen Mater. Uh, Nellia's cousin told the Kansas City Star that they grew up together near Enid and her cousin was a jack of all trades. Nellie had a welder's license, was an excellent cook. Some of Nellie's family recalled last seeing her back in May. She uh, also sent her mom a Mother's Day card that month. Then she disappeared into a suspected downward spiral of sex work to pay for drugs. And then Terry found her. Her murder quickly linked to Terry's other victims. All these victims were black women with either criminal records that included sex work or drugs or rumored to have been involved in sex work. All found in the same neighborhood. On December 3rd, 2004, Terry Blair is indicted now for eight counts of first-degree murder, one count of assault, and three counts of rape. The indictment reveals his connections to the murders of Sandra Reed, Nellie Harris, as well as three uh, uh, incidents of rape, May 3rd, or May 13th, excuse me, 2003, June 1st, 2004, June 6th, 2004, and another incident of assault, August 18th, 2004. Uh, May 13th, 2003, Terry Blair allegedly raped a woman named Ashley Siebert. June 1st, 2004, Terry uh, allegedly raped a woman named Joanna Smith. And on June 6th, Terry Blair allegedly raped a woman named Lori Lazi. The August 18th assault was the attack I mentioned earlier on Aaliyah Howard, uh, a woman he violently choked but did not apparently rape. 
The following month, on January 18, 2005, trying to defend himself, Terry Blair takes issue with the first 48 episode, which aired January 5th, 2005. January 18th, he wrote a letter to Judge John O'Malley, writing, Honorable Judge O'Malley, I'm writing you in regards to the gag order, my attorney, Randall Schledgel, and my constitutional right to receive a fair and impartial hearing and trial of the charges brought against me. The gag order was ordered as of 12.8.04 due to the extensive publicity in my charges by both the press and television media. That publicity has already imperiled the possibility for a fair trial. In violation of the court order, this publicity again was very much extensive, but now through the cable television media. This publicity focuses upon information that also would be barred at any trial, prior convictions, speculation, improper opinions, evidence of bad character, and guilty by association or guilt by association, on 1605, a television media show, the first 48, an A&E network show, aired an episode, A Serial Killer Calls. This show aired graphic video images of the victims' bodies, the homicide detectives and their families, the investigation into these charges, statements about criminal record, past conviction, testimony of alleged victims, the contents of the 911 caller confessions to the murders, that detectives alleges to be me, Terry Blair, the nature of physical evidence, opinion as to guilt, credibility, and character. I cannot begin to express how hurtful I find all of this, especially since so much of it is wildly inaccurate. No one knows how much these women suffered more than I do. I was there. I was the one who killed them and oftentimes also raped them. And it was uh, not as bad as the show portrayed. The women did not suffer like how the show made it seem. If anything, they, they did suffer more. But I digress. It is neither legal nor fair for the jury to be prejudiced against me going into this trial. Am I no good, lower than dirt, homicidal hater of women? Yes, indeed I am when they're scum, and I hate scum, and I enjoy killing scum. And if I'm lucky enough to walk free again, I will certainly kill more scum. But, and this is of the utmost importance, Your Honor, I'm not the exact type of scum portrayed on the first 48. So please, make the only conscionable decision there is to be made. And just, hey, let's call the whole thing off. Let's start over. I'll work harder to not get caught. I'll try a different neighborhood. You get to work on a case with less violent graphic details to be hurt. Everyone wins. Okay, sorry, that last part, uh, starting with the I cannot begin to express this with bullshit. Of course, you knew that. I was just saying what I felt like Terry wanted to write to the judge, not what he did. Jumping back into his real shit now. He does want everything just to be dismissed, by the way. Uh, he writes, extrajudicial statements that contains a substantial likelihood of materially prejudice in a trial was made, and there is reasonable likelihood that the show, The First 48, could affect the judgment of the jury. The show has been shown twice already and may probably be shown many more times before a trial. The show images could eventually, if not already, harm the court's ability to pick an impartial jury. It will be very difficult to set those images aside. The show detectives' comments, we believe Blair is the one, the images of the bodies, victim testimony, all impede defendant right to a fair trial. Media coverage already was an issue in this case and now aired on cable television all over Missouri. Police detective assisted television media to make extrajudicial statements that any reasonable person could expect to be disseminated by public communication by allowing their investigation, interviews, and evidence to be aired through audio communication over cable television before my trial and knowing that it, uh, uh, that it's illegible, what he wrote there, statements and information will have a substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing trial in this matter and in violation of the court order gag order, which is in full force. I have not received any discovery information in my own behalf, but the whole world has knowledge to all the evidence, testimony, and investigators' opinion in this matter. Detective statements as to they believe that Terry Blair is the one who is killing these women that Terry Blair is a 911 caller and calling me a serial killer and I have not been convicted of any crime is a violation of my constitutional right to a fair trial and their opinion is not facts. The show was as if I was on trial and convicted 
on cable TV. Through the detective's comments, the alleged victim's testimonies, the graphic showings of victim bodies, and all evidence collected or assumed. Evidentiary law, my past conviction for homicide, should not have been stated as detective's evidence to show that the defendant is more likely to have committed the current crime. Juries are more likely to wrongly convict if they are confronted with evidence of prior misconduct. Jurors tend to overvalue such evidence, and in some cases are so outraged by it that they can convict the defendant in the new case, even if the ab- even in the absence of sufficient proof. I was denied a preliminary hearing due to the grand jury indictment, and by law, none of the evidence could be discussed pertaining to these charges. But the show was staged as the preliminary hearing and trial, and received not only attention throughout the state of Missouri, but worldwide notoriety. I'm also concerned of my attorney, Randall Schledgel, who I feel have been prejudiced after viewing the show The First 48. He disregarded my request to file a motion in my behalf due to the continued publicity, the gag order violation, the showing of the state evidence, and the fact that I cannot receive a fair trial under the Constitution anywhere. His statement was that I'm right, but those women didn't deserve to die. I now feel that I'm being denied the right to counsel also, so I'm asking the court to hold this letter as my motion and reason to ask the court as the accused to dismiss due to these grounds and the gag. Well, the judge, of course, did not dismiss the trial. I got to say, for a guy who never finished high school and makes a lot of stupid decisions, he makes a pretty good argument, though. Truly, I actually do see Terry's point with this letter. These shows airing before a trial has concluded do prejudice the jury, do make it tough for an impartial uh, jury to have a fair trial. Just like the tabloid bullshit about Amanda Knox fucked her over, right? And her trials, just like the publicity around Scott Peterson, I feel ruined his chance to have a fair trial. But you can't just throw out the case. I do think there should be something where maybe these shows shouldn't be allowed to air these things as they're happening. They should have to wait in the interest of having a fair trial. On December 13, 2004, Terry Blair pleads guilty, excuse me, pleads not guilty to all the charges against him. Judge O'Malley sets a $500,000 bond for the first murder charge. Prosecutors argued that the bond was irrelevant because even if Terry made bond, well, he'd still have to stay in jail for the, for the uh, parole violation. February 1st, 2008, the Kansas City Star now reports that Terry Blair has agreed to forego a jury trial in exchange for avoiding the death penalty. I'm not sure we've talked about this option in other true crime sucks uh, in the U.S. Yes, you have the right to a trial by a jury of your peers, but you don't have to do it that way. You can also have a bench trial, which is uh, generally much, much quicker, where the judge will decide your fate. The exact criteria for being granted this option varies from state to state. There's also a federal option. Typically, it's reserved for cases of lesser legal consequence, like traffic violations, certain juvenile disputes. But there are exceptions, like here. Uh, Missouri seems to lead the way for U.S. states when it comes to defendants' ability to easily be granted a bench trial. Per Missouri Missouri Supreme Court Rule 2701B, the defendant may, with the assent of the court, waive a trial by jury and submit the trial of any criminal case to the court. The prosecution need not consent. Uh, Some defendants, um, you know, find that a judge will rule more fairly in their case than a jury. And that's what Terry Blair seemed to think. Well, the state now drops two of the murder charges, Nellie Harris and Sandra Reed, and they drop assault and forceful rape charges, the ones that they had least evidence for, and now do not seek the death penalty because that would help increase the odds of getting a guilty verdict if they don't put the judge in a position of personally deciding whether Terry uh, lives or dies. Makes sense. Here is a list of the six murder victims the prosecution does seek to find Terry guilty of. Uh, All their bodies were found around Prospect Avenue, right? All lived around Prospect Avenue when they died. Anna Ewing, 42. Died on or before July 14, 2004, due to strangulation and a broken neck. Patricia Wilson Butler, 58, died on or before September 2nd, uh, 2004, due to strangulation. Sheila McKenzie, 38, 
also died on or before September 2nd, 2004 due to strangulation and a broken neck. Darcy Williams, 25, died on or before September 4th, 2004 due to strangulation and a broken neck. Carmen Hunt, 40, died on or before September 4th, 2004 due to strangulation. And Claudette Junial, 31, also died on or before September 4th, 2004 due to strangulation and a broken neck. Well, Terry's trial opens on March 10th, 2008. Prosecutors describe Terry as a calculating and determined or as calculating and determined to kill as many prostitutes as he could. Prosecutor Michael Hunt tells the court that Terry Blair's DNA matches semen found on Sheila McKenzie. For reasons I don't understand, Terry's DNA also found a murder victim, Anna Ewing, not allowed into evidence. Uh, this will hurt the prosecution. Hunt also says that an expert would show that the 911 calls came from the area where one of Terry's family members lived. Terry denies his involvement in the murders. His defense describes the evidence as weak and circumstantial. They say the semen found on Sheila McKenzie's body proves that the two had sex, but not that he uh, murdered her. The defense calls the DNA evidence meaningless, says that another man's saliva also found on Sheila's body. Unknown DNA and hairs found on the victims would show Terry Blair is one of six possible suspects. In this case, according to the defense attorney, David Kenyon, Kenyon said his expert witness would show that calls came from a different part of the city and a linguistics expert would state that the 911 caller was not Terry Blair. March 11th, 2008, Cherry Chadbourne testifies that she worked as a sex worker in 2004 and that Terry Blair was one of her clients. She said that she and other sex workers stayed in an apartment building in 2004 where Terry lived with his mother, right? That apartment above his mom's. And she was afraid of Terry. I imagine almost everyone in the neighborhood was fucking afraid of Terry and several other Blairs. On September 6, 2004, she told an officer that Terry Blair said he was going to kill the prostitutes one by one. Under cross-examination, though, she admitted that she had been awake for more than 24 hours because she was high when she said that and that her memories at that time were flawed. Witness Latrice Leisure testifies next says she was the one who called the police on September 10th, 2004. Terry was at her house watching football. News showed his picture, named him as a person of interest in the murders. They both pretended not to notice. She told Terry she was tired, asked him to leave, called the police, and then soon she heard a dog barking. Uh, Terry had returned to the house, and sure enough, Terry was found hiding in the garage. Testified that the voice from the 911 calls uh, sometimes sounded like Terry Blair, but other times didn't. Latrice's daughter also testified that she talked to Terry Blair on September 10th, and he said, whoever killed the prostitutes must have had a good reason. Okay. Irene Williams, Darcy Williams' mother, testified about dropping Darcy off with a group of three men, one of whom was Terry Blair. Former medical examiner testified the four victims were too decomposed to determine an exact cause of death. Uh, on March 13, 2008, a defense expert testifies that the voice on the 911 call was likely not the voice of Terry Blair. Thomas Purnell, assistant professor of linguistics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, described how he analyzed the 911 calls and phone conversations between Terry and his grandma or Terry and a TV reporter. Purnell testified that Terry and the caller were both male, African-American, and urban, but their pitch and pacing were different. Huh. Uh, wouldn't someone's pitch and pacing be different if they were, say, trying to disguise their voice? Hi, I'm Dan Cummins. Wee! I'm also Dan Cummins. What's this big deal? It's me, a suck nasty guy. Mm, tis I, Dan Cummins, darling. Uh, don't I sound grand? Now go fetch me a peach melba. Mama Willie, eh? Mama Willie, your mama, Dan Cummins. Now come on over here and help mama wash her front butt. Right, you get it. Prosecution would point this fucking exact sort of thing out. The defense played the 911 calls in court. Under cross-examination, Purnell admit that the, admits that the caller, yeah, I guess, you know, sure, he could have been disguised his voice. And then he acknowledged that he had never performed this type of analysis for any court. Sweet. 
Uh, closing arguments take place March 21st, uh, 2008. The prosecution argues that Terry Blair killed the women because he thought sex workers were scum. Assistant prosecutor Michael Hunt reminds the court about the testimony of Cherry Chadborn, Irene Williams, Latrice Leisure's daughter. And a defense expert says that the voice of the 911 calls had belonged to an African-American man from the U.S. Prosecutor Hunt told the jury the finger points at Terry Blair. Public defender Cynthia Dryden calls the prosecution's evidence unreliable, too little to convict. Dryden said about the DNA evidence, some of this DNA is not Blair's. When you start pulling out part and considering only some, you can make it fit whatever you want. The defense also questioned the investigation on how the police determined where the 911 calls were made. The police never proved that Terry Blair made the 911 calls. And if they couldn't do that, well, they felt that they couldn't convict Terry. Well, March 27, 2008, the prosecution wins. 46-year-old Terry Prospect Killer Blair is convicted of six counts of first-degree murder. He's convicted of the murders of Sheila McKenzie, Anna Ewing, Patricia Wilson Butler, Darcy Williams, Carmen Hunt, and Claudette Junior. Seven murders in total he's committed now and counting the uh, previous murder conviction two decades earlier. Nine murders if you count the dropped murder charges of Nellie Harris and Sandra Reed. The prosecution and law enforcement continue to believe Terry is responsible for those killings. Judge O'Malley acknowledges that the case is full of conflicting expert testimony and small pieces of circumstantial evidence. Before O'Malley announced the verdict, he criticized the KCPD for its media coverage regarding working with the first 48 producers, saying, I respectfully suggest if you don't want problems, you need to pursue the criminals instead of the cameras. After the verdict, O'Malley said that the most important piece of evidence was Terry's DNA found on and in the body of Sheila McKenzie, saying, since we know this semen belongs to Mr. Blair, we must conclude he was present as Miss McKenzie expired, uh, her throat crushed by his hands and his irrational evil hatred of women. Judge O'Malley read off his other reasons for finding Terry guilty, saying, first, Terry lived with his mom at an apartment below an apartment used by sex workers, including some of the victims. O'Malley discounted the defense argument that another man's hair and saliva were found on Sheila's body and other victims, as well as DNA on cans, a condom, and other objects near the bodies because, quote, the alleys around 25th and Prospect are littered with cans, bottles, socks, condoms, cigarette butts, and trash. O'Malley said that Cherry uh, Chadbourne's testimony was stunningly identical to the views expressed by the 911 caller. You know, the whole language of like scum and all that. Irene Williams, victim Darcy Williams' mom, said after the verdict, I knew from the beginning that it would come out this way because the truth will always survive over lies and evil. You could look in his eyes and it's a blankness. But when he looks at a woman, it's an evil look. It's just like hatred. Irene Williams was sick with cancer at this time, but said that she felt peace. The victim's relatives viewed her as a grandmother figure, and they all became close during the long legal process. Terry Blair received six consecutive life sentences on April 24, 2008. Terry's appeal to the Missouri Court of Appeals denied August 18, 2009. And since he lost that appeal, Terry has uh, occasionally no longer pretended that he didn't kill those women, has admitted to the killings in some interviews. We'll check in with a bit of what Terry has had to say in these interviews in today's takeaways. Now let's get out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Before wrapping up the uh, twisted tale of Terry Blair, one more quick sponsor that I hope you will really enjoy. Hey, it's me, uh, Rooster Bubble. I'm kind of a lawyer now. Don't worry about it. I don't have much time. This is the only music I could get for cheap. So listen up and don't bust my balls. If you've been accused of a crime you know you committed, call my law office. 1-800-GUILTY. That's guilty. Spelled with two Y's at the end. So it has enough letters to make a real number. Look, other law firms are going to try and sell you a bill of goods about how you're going to walk away free. (laughs) Yeah, right. 
Ain't gonna happen. That's not how the justice system works. You know you did it. You know you're going to prison. I know you're going to prison. So why call the rooster at 1-800-GUILTY-WITH-TWO-WISE? Because you are cock-a-doodle-doomed. And also, I can help you once you're in prison. That's where the rooster shines. I've been there. I'll be back there. Most of my kids, cousins, nephews, brothers, nearly all my friends are there. I've represented all of the Blair guys multiple times. They're all there. I can hook you up. Make sure you're not bottom bunk. Make sure you get plenty of smokes every week. I can get you pills. I can teach you how to make a shiv. I can tell you who to shank in the yard. I won't get you off, but I'll probably keep you alive. I'm the rooster, baby. They can't stop me. I ain't going to die. And neither are you when you call 1-800-GUILTY-WITH-TWO-WISE because you are cock-a-doodle-doom. Only call if you're guilty. If you're innocent, uh, don't waste my fucking time. Uh, get a real lawyer and shit. Okay, well, that was, you know, that level of honesty in a commercial from a, a, a law firm I found really refreshing. I, I like that. A different angle. Good for Rooster. You know, work with what you know. Uh, now let's wrap this baby up. Terry Blair, a.k.a. the Prospect Killer, was an American serial killer convicted for six murders in 2008, originally charged with eight, and he served two decades in prison for a previous murder conviction. All women. All allegedly over hatred of women for performing sex work. When he got out of prison, did he keep killing the mother of his kids over and over again? Was that what he was doing? Still angry about her foray into sex work? You know, maybe she was a sex worker because Terry never seemed to have a fucking job. Uh, you know, those poor two kids, living kids of his, by the way, I, I hope they were not still living in that neighborhood when he got out of prison for killing their mom. Was Terry almost doomed to do what he did or to commit other serious crimes that would have also led to him sitting in prison today? As a teenager, Blair witnessed his mom fatally shoot his stepdad, then several other family members would soon be found guilty of committing other murders and violent crimes. In 1982, Terry followed in their footsteps by beating his former girlfriend, Angela Moore, to death, supposedly because he was angry that she was doing sex work. She was pregnant at the time and was already the mother of his two children. Once back out of prison, he got right back to killing and raping, otherwise assaulting. He never tried, it seems, to live any form of a straight, honest life. Just violence for Terry. And he was just one of many of the Blair family to live that way. But also, he had nine siblings. Ten, ten of them all together. Only three convicted murders. And, uh, you know, and one uh, somebody tried to kill. Uh, try, or one of them was somebody who tried to kill somebody. But six have at least not been caught for killing. I'm guessing at least a few of those six have no criminal records. Otherwise, the local press would have mentioned them when compiling information about Terry's, you know, serial killer family at his trial. So that's actually kind of inspiring. A few of Terry's siblings, maybe even most of them, grew up in the same shitty, hopeless neighborhood, surrounded by the same fucking psychopaths and so much crime and poverty and did not end up in prison. How about that? At least one of those Blairs should be a fucking motivational speaker right now. Tell us how you did that. How did you mentally survive that much insanity? How did you watch your mom kill your stepdad? Numerous younger siblings were present as well for that murder, according to a newspaper account. And you watched several older siblings go to prison for murder and you did not follow in their footsteps. That's impressive. And again, speaks to uh, this crime. It's, it's not in the blood. It's not in the blood. I, I picked this topic specifically for the murderous family angle. Had not seen an example of so many other violent family members, at least not in recent times. The Blairs are like the modern day bloody benders. And lived in almost the same place, Labette County, Kansas, less than a three-hour drive from Prospect Avenue in Kansas City. But again, just like I pointed out, uh, there is still a hopeful angle in their dark tale. Most of the Blairs don't kill. Or are really fucking good at getting away with it. But I'm going to believe that they don't kill. And that makes me feel good. Now, let's go over a few more facts about today's story and uh, learn a bit more about what Terry said in the past few years in some interviews in today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. 
top five takeaways. Number one, Terry Blair was born into a family of criminals. His mom, two brothers, sister, and two nephews have been convicted of murder. And a teen Terry was a witness to one of those murders. Number two, in 1982, Terry Blair murdered 19-year-old Angela Monroe, his former girlfriend and the mother of his two kids, who was also pregnant with his third child. Terry beat her to death with a fucking stick, left her body behind an apartment building, then called the police to report the murder, just like he called the police and reported his stepdad's murder a few years before in 1978. Just like he would call the police and report more of his murders in September of 2004. No serial killer loved calling the police uh, more and getting himself in trouble than Terry Blair. Number three, Terry Blair was charged with the murders of eight women in 2003, 2004. Almost all the women were killed in the Prospect Avenue area, working class area of Kansas City, Missouri, a, a sadly a crime riddled area. He became known as the Prospect Killer. Five women were found on September 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Three of those victims were found because an anonymous man called 911 gave the exact locations of the bodies. Prosecutors were never able to prove that the caller was Terry Blair, but he was convicted of six murders, including the ones reported by the caller in a non-jury trial. Number four, Terry Blair hated sex workers, allegedly told one woman that he wanted to kill them all one by one. Terry was extremely violent towards women. Not only was he charged with murder, he was charged with assault, three counts of rape. Two women spoke with the first 48 about being choked by a man matching Terry's description, left one woman for dead, said he wasn't going to kill the other because she was not a sex worker. It has never been made clear exactly why Blair hated sex workers so fucking much. Thank God he was caught relatively quickly. If he hadn't been, he would have certainly kept stacking up sex worker bodies at a rapid pace in secluded areas around Prospect Avenue. And number five, new info. Let's talk about Terry Blair's conflicting prison interviews. On February 22nd, 2021, YouTuber Phil Chalmers posted a prison interview with Terry Blair. Terry talked about his childhood, barely, uh, said his family were uh, like most normal families, but he did grow up in poverty and they did uh, things to have things. Again, I, I truly don't think Terry knows what uh, normal looks like, at least not for most people. He only lived around Prospect Avenue, Kansas City, and uh, now you know it's, it's, it's either been prison or Prospect Ave. How sad. He said that he and his siblings stole things like shoes, clothing, and food growing up. He admitted to stealing food, trying to steal shoes from Sears. Uh, when asked what led to the murders, Terry said, well, I was out in the streets and uh, running into different people at different times. A few people I ran into. Uh, we had uh, some type of problems uh, as far as... Uh, asking me to loan them something or whatever and then running off with it or I gave them some money for a date or something and they take off with the money. It's just one thing led to another. I don't buy this. Uh, I don't think for a second the murders were about, uh, you know, sex workers taking his money and running. And by the way, when he says these things, he is so nonchalant, so calm. Uh, He told Phil that his goal was not to eliminate all sex workers and that he had no interaction with a woman who said that. He claimed he didn't know why she would say that. Uh Uh-huh. Phil confronted Terry about killing the women in quick succession. Terry said that these women made him mad, but he wasn't out to kill them, stating, yeah, it was, it was just incidents that happened. You know, I'd run into them out in the streets and things that happened between us that uh, led to those things occurring. No, it wasn't nothing that was planned. Okay, I'm going to go out today and this is what I'm going to do and this is what I'm planning on doing tomorrow, this person or anybody I ran into. Terry said about his anger towards sex workers, I think it's mostly based on just the fact of not understanding them. I don't know. I don't know why I took it so personal, but I did. I don't know. It's hard to explain. When asked if he killed more people than he was convicted of, he answered, yeah, sure. And then said there were about six more victims he was not convicted of killing. He described his victims as the type of people nobody was looking for. In this interview, Terry also admitted to making the 911 calls, said he did it so the victims could be found. He did express some remorse for his crimes or try to saying, 
I mean, when you look at them as uh, people and, you know, you got to feel bad because, you know, regardless of the life that they lived, whatever, each of them was human, you know, even if they didn't have no family or whatever, you know. So when you sit back and you really look at things and you hear things and see things, yeah, you got to think back to them and feel terrible. Watching him say this, I did wonder for a second if he meant it. Was he just so fucked up for so long? He truly just didn't see sex workers as actual people and that now maybe he does see them as people. No, he's bullshitting here. Wait until I reveal what he said later uh, to someone else, same, later the same year. He's a fucking sociopath. And again, so weirdly calm, nonchalant, saying all this, never sounded embarrassed, shamed, angry, emotional, nothing. Well, later in 2021, on October 20th, podcaster Andrew Dodge, host of Unforbidden Truth podcast, posted another prison interview with Terry, where he gave some conflicting answers to the same questions. He told Dodge that his parents were not together throughout his childhood, said he grew up with his mom and stepfather, who he was close with, said his life was home, said his home life was good, and his mom did the best she could raising them. Did she? Well, I mean, I guess if she was struggling with severe mental illness, maybe she did. Uh, he discussed the death of his stepfather, Elton Gray, saying, I don't use the word murder. She didn't uh, murder him. Uh, it was an accidental thing in our view. Uh, so, you know, she had a problem at the time. So, you know, we don't consider it as being murder. Terry said he was close with his brother, Walter, growing up. He said Walter never admitted committing the murder of the rape victim. that put him on death row, at least not to Terry. Terry told Dodge, so, you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I mean, I was shocked. I was hurt behind... Uh, the accusation because it dealt with one of my best friends. But like I said, that was one of those accusations that was made for whatever, for whatever reason it was made because he fucking killed her. Terry said he never really knew his sister, Warnetta, that she was mostly raised by his dad, Mississippi, but she did live in Prospect Avenue for a long time. So that was weird for him to say. Terry said about the 1982 murder of his girlfriend, Angela Monroe. uh, That was an incident where my sons was placed in a foster care. And, uh, I was sent a letter from family services that they was in foster care and they had a hearing coming up and I just happened to run into her uh, two days after that and asked her about my sons, asked where they, where they were at. She said it was a home and I knew that wasn't, you know, and we got into an argument and just one thing led to another and that's how that took place. That is not even fucking close to the story, he told police originally and not what he told Phil Chalmers or Phil Chambers. Uh, Terry said that during his first time in prison, he took anger management classes, worked in laundry, worked in the metal shop, making license plates and other jobs. The first thing he did when he got out was visit his family. He said he worked a few different jobs after he was released. No, he didn't. After violating parole, he's just working these out. I fuck it. I highly doubt it. I highly fucking doubt it. In this interview, Terry denied making the 911 calls. Also gave a very lengthy and confusing explanation of cell towers and coordinates. Uh, he said he didn't have a problem with sex workers saying, as far as I'm concerned, they women, and that's the way of survival, I guess. I've dated prostitutes before, uh, before I went to prison the first time. Uh, after I got out of prison, I mean, I don't see nothing wrong with him. What? He admitted to killing them when talking to Phil. In this interview, he also even denied knowing Sheila McKenzie, let alone killing her. He talked about his feelings when he was sentenced, saying, I didn't feel good. <laughs> that, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, but I just figured, okay, well, I got my appeal process. You know, I mean, this is what the judge came with. I listened to his reasons for coming with this. I knew that everything that he reasoned was against the weight of the evidence and just figured I'd deal with it in the higher courts. He told Dodge he doesn't believe he ever received a fair trial. Saying, I mean, how can you receive a fair trial when you got something on television on the first 48, three years, and something before you even go to trial? Any jury can uh, bias, you know? If they believe in what they hear and what they see like most people do, you got the judge who watched it, you know, made him biased. I don't know if the judge did watch it. You know, because that's what people do. They believe everything they see or hear on TV. As if those people are right, you know, and uh, like I said, according to the paperwork that I got, I can prove all of them to be wrong, you know, 
but that's not public information. That's stuff that the public doesn't know. Haven't seen, haven't heard, but I got it, you know? But me being the only one to see it and have it, I mean, you know, it means nothing. Yeah, he's he's a victim, you guys. He's a victim. The first 48 producers, it's their fault. They put him in prison. They fucked him. He didn't kill those women, even though he said he did in previous interviews. No, uh-uh. They just, uh, they recorded police investigating him and gathering a lot of evidence that he did kill those women and then arrested him and then charged him with their murders. And he, w- he was just an innocent convicted murderer who had recently violated parole and kept ending up in the wrong place at the wrong time over and over. And sometimes the semen got on the victim, you know, maybe inside of the vagina, a woman who was just murdered that he had never even met or had sex with. Fucking crazy. Terry described the first 48 episode as cut and paste stuff. He said, people in the world is not interested in facts. They're not interested in the truth. Eh, all they're interested in is a ghost story or whatever the media say is the facts. When, like I said, out of all the people that I've talked to over the years and I've been here now, not one of the, except well, except one of them, have asked for the facts, asked to see the paperwork, to see court documents, see police reports. Nobody else has. Everybody else is just caught up in the first 48. He's really hung up on this first 48. The newspapers, what they say, she say, which they don't know nothing about my family. They don't know nothing about me. Actually, they don't know nothing about the case from what I've seen in the first 48. It was just to glamorize. They work for the police department. They glamorize the police department. I got thousands of papers of tips from the tip hotline identifying different people. But according to the first 48, I'm the only suspect. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. And it's a bunch of BS. I don't think the local press made up your arrest record or the arrest records of your family member's diary. Man, these fucking serial killers, they're all the fucking same. It's never that they're just, that they've just chosen to commit horrible acts that they did not have to commit. Even when they confess, even when they admit they did it, there's always a blame game. Always easier to look outward rather than inward, right? Why, why are we talking about those women I may be killed, okay? Why can't, why can't we talk about what happened to me, how I got fucked by the first 48 producers and the justice system? I'm glad he's never getting out, right? Hope the Blairs, currently not in prison, can move the fuck away from Prospect Avenue if they have not done so already. Change the association with their family name. Get that fresh start and live great lives. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Prospect Killer Terry Blair has been sucked. Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck. Uh, thanks again to the Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to the Suck Ranger, Tyler C., for producing and directing today. And to the Art Warlock, Logan Keith, for helping. Thanks to Bitelixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. The Art Warlock, Logan Keith, again, for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com. And for helping our socials, along with the Suck Ranger. And a team led by our social media strategist, Ryan Handelsman. And uh, also currently managed by, how do you say it, Emily Lissiardi? Is that right, Tyler? Licciardi. Licciardi. Okay. I, I can't believe I fucked that up with my fluency in Italian. Licciardi. Uh, thanks to producer Olivia Lee again for the initial research this week. Thanks to the uh, All Seen Eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad, making sure Discord keeps running smooth, and everyone over on the Time Suck subreddit and the Bad Magic subreddit. Next week, another Space Lizard voted in topic. We dive into a story of a killer who early on the morning of May 18th, 1980, killed 57 people. A prolific killer. A killer who had stewed for months, exhibiting behavior that was more and more concerning while people nearby waited, hoped nothing would happen, until one day, all hell broke loose. The twist? This killer was a volcano. Located in Skamania County, Washington, Mount St. Helens towers above the nearby landscape. It's Snowy Peak, earning it the sometime nickname, the Mount Fuji of America. It's a perfect example of why so many flock to the Pacific Northwest to see landscapes they can't see elsewhere. Spend a few days, weeks, or an entire summer in an idyllic location surrounded by old-growth pine trees, gently sloping valleys, massive mountains, pristine flowing rivers. 
But in March of 1980, this paradise would become a hellscape. In the middle of that month, Mount St. Helens began exhibiting strange behavior. The volcano had been thought to be inactive since it hadn't erupted since 1857. Since contemporary science didn't really have good measurements for this kind of thing, nobody knew how big that eruption was. Could have been small, call them a smoke or ash, which meant that the people nearby would probably be safe for centuries, if not millennia. But they would not be. Small earthquakes started rocking the ground under the volcano, a sure sign of magma moving under the earth. Soon hundreds of them were shaking the earth every day. Then a bulge would form on the side of the mountain, a bulge that moved and grew every day. Scientists still thought they'd have some kind of lead time on an eruption, so they held off declaring any kind of major emergency. Some local businesses did shut down, but most of them didn't want to. Most of them just outside the red zone kept operating, not wanting to relinquish profits, even though there was no promise that the land they were on would be safe from a deadly blast. As spring progressed, it became an all-out war between businesses, private owners, the government agencies assigned to protect them, with scientists in the risky business of predicting when the killer would blow. And on the morning of May 18, 1980, she would do exactly that. The story of the massive eruption of Mount St. Helens next week on Time Suck. Right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Uh, let's start with the Cummins Law message. Been getting a lot of those lately. Uh, I blame Jeffrey Lundgren. Part two about Cost Sick Sucker, Carly Curry, her lunch. Carly writes, Dan, you kink shaming piece of shit. JK, haha. What I meant to say is Dan the man, hot heart father daddy, mushmouth supreme. I just finished the latest suck. And I got to tell you, when it came to the part about the poop dick blowjob, I almost lost the entire contents of my stomach. I typically have a pretty strong stomach, but that just about did me in. My coworkers all listen to Scared to Death, but Time Suck is just a wee bit too much for them. That being said, they are used to your shenanigans coming from my room. But why am I glad that this part played on my drive home? I already get weird looks as it is. The young coworker I share a room with suddenly became interested in the Epstein story, so I happily suggest that we listen to the two Time Suck episodes about his life and demise, forgetting the aforementioned shenanigans. Suddenly, the dying cat singing of Yoko Ono filled our workplace as I scrambled to cover the speaker on my phone to muffle the noise, yelling, Shut up, Yoko! Good times. I love you, man. Hail Nimrod and praise be to Lucifina, who also probably gagged about the poop dick blowjob. Keep on sucking, Carly Curry. Well, I also, Carly, felt sick coming across that dirty, dirty dick story. If anyone ever needed Mama Ridgeway's clean wean soap, my God, it was Jeffrey Lundgren. Sorry you almost lost your lunch. Happy to hear about the Yoko Ono debacle. And now for a different kind of comes, uh, Cummins Law uh, situation, vicious sucker. Uh, James Newman has weaponized the suck, writing, Greetings, Suckmaster. I'm just going to apologize now. This might be pretty lengthy with backstory, but you read that, but you read that title right. I did it on purpose. Yeah, sorry, I forgot to include the subject line there. Uh, today in school, I listened to episode 341 for the part one on old Jeffrey, and boy, was it interesting. Interesting. Mmm, peanut butter. I got home this evening, quickly noticed the voices from my neighbor's apartment. I can hear them quite easily due to this weird apartment I live in. It's newly renovated, really nice, and my wife and I just moved in at the start of the year to put me close to my campus to walk. Only thing, it used to be an office building, and so my apartment and my neighbor's apartment share a door. Not an entry door, nope, a door right off my kitchen that goes right into my neighbor's apartment. So noises are heard, mostly coming from my wife and I. Oh, this poor fella. We've been blessed by Lucifina, and he hears it all. Hail, Lucifina, I love it. With the noise being so easy to hear, my wife and I have grown quite curious as to who this guy is, because boy, is it quiet. I've heard the sounds of video games once in three months, rarely hear a TV, mostly just this guy coughing his lungs out for months. And occasionally, like tonight, he has company, presumably his lady friend and her dog. But tonight there was another voice, a sweet old lady voice. And being the sucker I am and our 
beautiful brains, I immediately thought how great it would be to blast some fucked up or creepy podcast and just imagine what they think. I told myself, no, you don't need to weird them out. Just enjoy your dinner and relax. So I sat in my food, kept hearing their voices along with the little Cummins voice in my head saying, do it. Come on, do it. Let them hear some of that peanut butter. Well, you won, Dan. And I've yet to be Cummins Lod, but I'm, I'm very careful when I listen to my podcast. But tonight I wanted to, I wanted a bit of that glory. So using my TV with a sound bar and subwoofer, I went to the old YouTube, pulled up this episode, 341, went ahead, turned it up a few notches, skimmed through, and bam, landed right in the spot where you first introduced us to Jeffrey's shit fetish, where without warning, he shit on his wife, and I just let it play. I have no idea what they heard. Hopefully all of it. And I don't know what they thought about it, but boy, was it good because I was laughing to myself without even knowing. Well, if you get this, I hope you enjoyed your first story of self-cummins law. Thanks for all the knowledge and laughs. Keep on sucking. Thanks, James. Well, man, punishing the neighbor with Jeffrey shit. I got to say, it's pretty fucked up. I kind of like it though. I know it's not the neighborly thing to do, but it does amuse me <laughs> to hear about it. I guess if they really, really hated it. They could have knocked on your door and be like, hey man, can you please turn that down? We've, we've all thrown up. I hope your neighbor's now a fan. I fucking doubt it, but I hope. I also hope he doesn't kill you for doing shit like that. Uh, now a more serious message, much more serious. An anonymous and fantastic sucker shares a message with the subject line of a thank you and a trigger warning. And they write this message, excuse me, uh, this message is going to be long and hopefully not ramble too much. I won't go into too much detail. I've listened to your comedy for several years now, mostly on road trips to my home state, which is two away from my current one. I first heard of Time Suck after hearing you on Middle of Somewhere with Chad and Cy. I'd heard them do ads for BetterHelp and thought, I don't have any use for them. Then heard ads during Time Suck as well and thought, well, why not give them a try? I started talking with the therapist about two years ago and I've made a lot of progress since then. Here is the warning. Uh, ever since I was about 11 or 12, I've had suicidal thoughts every day, currently in my upper 40s. On several occasions, have had a loaded firearm in my mouth with, the finger, with my finger on the trigger, but just couldn't complete the task. Last time, shortly before finding out about Time Suck, now I think of everything that wouldn't exist if I had completed my first attempt. I would not have three of my four children, would not have my two grandchildren, my amazing job, and awesome wife. If anyone else has similar feelings, please find the help. It is worth it. Hail Nimrod. Well, yes. Wow. Uh, thank you for this powerful message. Yes. So many of us have horrible thoughts. I am glad you have not acted on those urges that you got help and your kids, uh, you know, are glad too, and your grandkids. You know what? I feel off myself from time to time. I've been feeling off uh, the past few weeks. It's, it's this fucking time of year. No matter how much vitamin D I take. Uh, well, it's maybe not just the time of year. It might be my brain too. Uh, the cumulative gray days of winter up here, they start to fuck my brain up. I start to read negativity into everything I do. Sometimes she gets real dark in my head. Some of it might be chemical, right? I, I've privately had massive mood swings my whole life. Try my best not to show them. Uh, got some serious mental illness in the family tree. Don't really talk about it much, but it's there. Uh, even when life is going great, some days my mind just will not accept it. I used to just distract myself with uh, more and more work, but eventually that wouldn't do the trick. This time I noticed it hit when I had blown off therapy for a few months myself just because uh, I got too busy. Probably not a coincidence. Uh, this message was a great reminder for me to make another appointment. I need a tune-up. We could all use tune-ups, right? Sometimes I think about how at the bare minimum, we all carry around constantly the inherently stressful knowledge of knowing that our own death is imminent. Every fucking one of us, right? No matter how good life is going, how fucking heavy is just that. Sometimes I'm at peace with that knowledge and sometimes I'm fucking not. Uh, no matter where you are at in life, if you're dealing with some darkness, go talk to somebody. Get it out there in the light and deal with it. Get it off your fucking shoulders and chest. Just saying this stuff out loud uh, helps me a little bit right now. So thanks for that message. 
Uh, now, finally, I want to reveal the identity of the real person you have to thank for Jeffrey Lundgren's shit show a few weeks ago. Complete degenerate Carter DeGraw. And Carter writes, Hello, Suckmaster Supreme and ruler over all things curious. I am a longtime listener and second time emailer. You see, I emailed for the first time the Bad Magic Productions team in the summer of last year with a topic idea that I thought you guys might get a kick out of. That topic just so happened to be Jeffrey Lundgren. I had read the Prophet of Death book and immediately knew you and your team would do this maniac justice with your great storytelling and witty comedy. And boy, was I right. Well, that's very nice. Thank you. I write this email on the Tuesday after the second part of the Kirtland cult drops. And after listening to how you shit on Jeffrey and Alice, pun intended, for two wonderful episodes, I'm very happy. The material you covered in this episode was very dark. The material you cover in most episodes is dark. No matter the topic, however, I always love tuning in to see how you and your team can make the dark corners of this little world a little more interesting and funny. And I'm not the only one with a twisted dark sense of humor. That is clear. Anyway, I just wanted to email you guys today, say thank you at the end of the Skull and Bones episode. When I heard that the next topic would be that topic I had written in about so many months ago, I became oddly happy, screaming in my car, clapping, maybe a tear or two of joy, and laughing hysterically at what I knew was going to be a great next two episodes. I'm not taking credit for this topic alone. I am but a small cog who may have influenced it, but that little tie to a topic was so much fun. You guys reach so many people, bring so much joy and laughter to all the loyal space lizards and meat stacks. I truly hope you guys realize how much you mean to so many. On behalf of everyone who thinks that this podcast is a community of friends, thank you. For everyone who uses this podcast as an escape from the hard times around us and the worries of the world, we say thank you. And finally, we recognize that Dan and the relatively small team put in a ton of hours between all the productions and keep it running like a billion-dollar well-oiled machine. So thank you again. Not sorry for the length email. Three out of five stars. Your fellow mesh, mish, mushmouth, Carter D. Well, Carter, that was very nice. You sick fucking degenerate. Uh, a fellow sick degenerate recognizes other ones. Uh, I'm so thankful that there are so many out there. Uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. I, I actually thought for a while that Sophie had found that topic, but now I remember you sending that email. I looked it up. I was like, holy shit, send it along to Sophie. And then she was like, yeah, this is crazy. Uh, so hail Nimrod Carter. <laughs> you gave us Skidmark, long live Skidmark. Uh, but for real, you gave us one of the craziest fucking stories I've ever heard. Uh, I did find it immensely darkly entertaining. Good pick. Now go find something even better Hail Carter DeGraw. Hail all of you who listen. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. So thank you for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Scared to death and time suck uh, each week and the secret suck each week for you space lizards. Please do not insist that people start calling you rooster. And don't raise a family of prison-bound criminals this week. Just don't fucking do that. Just keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. Hey, hey, Tyler. For the rest of this week, uh, could you finish that FBI paperwork I asked you to look into? Uh, uh, paperwork. Yeah, the paperwork about my dad. I just want to like get the background check completed. Oh, oh, what was his date of birth? Uh, I'll, I'll give it to you off the air. I'll give his date of birth off the air, okay. but I'll give that to you. And I just want you to pay special attention. See, just make sure that his last, the last name of Bogle or Blair never comes up. I want to see if that comes up in any of the background. And also if he ever went by the alias of Rooster. Oh, okay. Okay. Or known associates. Or known associates. Thank you very much. Copy that. Cock-a-doodle-doom!